0: Hey, 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 everyone, welcome back, welcome back, it is time for season two, episode two of How's That Day, a culture rundown with Tom and Phil, I am Phil Weedenheft here to introduce you to my always love, my always man, my always best friend, my co-host, Mr. Tom Bond, each week Tom and I get together to chat about how our days have been going and together we work through our thoughts on what's going on in pop culture, so I'll start this week with the same question I ask him every single week, Tom, how's that day?
1: Uh oh. And now, six foot one and a quarter from Andover, Massachusetts, coming in at two hundred and some pounds, Thomas <laughs> Bond. Yeah. Woo, oh, I, I woo. forgot. The announcer says uh, from North Carolina. Um, from St. Mike's, and then he dropped out, and then he went to another school and failed out, and then he went to film school and passed, and then he graduated from a fourth school. Thomas, bon- okay. Hi Phil. Uh, I'm good. I was really excited to do that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I liked it.
1: I liked it a lot. I, uh, I think I blew out the levels, though. I'm really sorry.
0: I'll lower them. Is it's that okay.
1: horrible to listen to? Did it? Did it hurt your ears? No. Not at all. I, I moved back a little bit from the mic. I should have moved back further. Phil, I'm doing great, as you can tell by that introduction, uh, me actually doing a tiny amount of work for this podcast, which I normally <laughs> leave up to you. I'm, I'm doing great. I'm very excited to be here tonight with you, my love.
0: Is it because you did the homework I assigned you to do? I did
1: the homework. It is April 30th, which is halfway to Halloween Day. It is the midpoint of the year. Between the previous and the next Halloween, you know, we're exact. We're exactly six months away.
0: That's definitely one way to keep track of the year.
1: Um, April thirtieth is, you know, April uh, for a lot of horror nerds is considered like Halloween two or October two, like October. Is two. it? Yeah, because it's like the midway point. You know, it's exact. It's the six month uh, point um, between October's um, and April thirtieth is always uh, to me in my head anyway into a couple horror fans it's like a mini little mini holiday the halfway to halloween day so i'm excited about that film also excited because you know we're recording this on april 30th uh thursday april 30th 2020 um there's a lot of cool stuff happening right now uh that frankenstein play is available online now were we talking about on the pod or just privately about that
0: That was privately. I was going to bring it up later in my recommendations section, actually. Yes,
1: we will discuss that later, but that is live now. There's a special Parks and Rec, which just aired. I haven't watched it yet, but I'm excited to. Yeah, it
0: just aired a couple hours ago. I think maybe we can talk about it next week.
1: Yes, I I hope we do. I will definitely be watching it soon. And um, I probably said this to you. I've definitely said it to many people. uh, When the lockdown hit in March and we got towards the end of March, in my head and what I thought was... You know, April's coming up. It's probably gonna be the weirdest and one of the hardest months of our lives as a community. And it is April thirtieth. In, in an hour and a half, we will be in May. And, and I know it's just a random number and you put whatever It's meaning, gonna be May. You put you put whatever meaning into it that you want. But to me I, I thought at the at the end of March as we got into April If we can just get through April and survive, um, we won't be through the shit. We won't be done with it. But to me, that signifies a big landmark hit, a big check that we can put. We've survived April. We're on to May. And hopefully uh, brighter days are ahead soon. So I'm in in a great mood.
0: Good, good. Well, I hope in uh, six months from now when it is actual real Halloween, we're not like all dying again so we'll see
1: me too my fervent hope i was talking to a friend about this earlier today is that come october 2020 we will be able to go to halloween horror nights universal the haunted hayride all this stuff. are you sure i I said it's my hope
0: oh okay yeah Um, i was gonna say i'm not sure man
1: no i'm not sure either it's my hope that we're able to do that or maybe some version of it i don't know but um, I really hope you got
0: that, you got to take me. I've never been. No, I
1: was gonna say this will this will be your first October as an LA resident, and you'll get to experience all of the great horror. La- it's a great horror community out here in Los Angeles. There's so many events going on. There are a ton of horror fans. Um, you will you will, you would have a blast doing all of those things. So hopefully it can happen. But that is six months down the road. We're taking things one day at a time, one month at a time. April is about to end. We're celebrating. We watched the Last Dance. I'm happy. I'm in a good mood. But Phil, how is that day?
0: Uh, my day is pretty good. Pretty good. It's been pretty standard for my days here. Uh, you know, woke up. Uh, I had a weird writing day where it was both productive and non-productive. But it was, you know, I basically I wrote a scene that I didn't like, and I was in a bad mood. So I did what every good writer does. I took a nap. And then I woke up and I th- thought about it harder. And I think I figured out what I want to do to fix it tomorrow. So I think I figured it out. So I think, uh, you know, it was one of those days where I had to do bad work to figure out how to do the good work tomorrow. So it's not a total waste, but I also like just felt shitty as a writer today. Um, but other than that, you know, I went to the grocery, went took my dog on a walk. I, uh, we watched The Farewell tonight. Um, yeah, it's been a pretty good day so far. I mean, pretty average. Talked to my daughter earlier. Uh, we had a nice little chat about when she might possibly be able to come out here. We'll see. We're going to try and I think July might be when she comes out here. I think that might be a safe time, Okay, but I'm not sure. Yeah, man.
1: Power of the nap.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. You got to take a nap because sometimes you're just thinking so hard. And I always remember this line from Mad Men with advice that Don gives to Peggy. He's like, think about it really hard. And then go take a nap or forget about it, and it'll come back to you later.
1: Absolutely. Sometimes you got to step away for a minute.
0: Yeah, so I figured out the problem. I'll fix it tomorrow. But, yeah, I did. I was, like, I'm sure you know. Like, I was writing a scene, and I was, like, it was a long scene, and I was, like, five pages in, and I was, like, I'm going to delete all of this. This is, (laughs) you know, it's just, like, I was, like, uh, just feeling bad about it today. But other than that, it was a pretty good day. Uh, I watched some stuff, you know, got some – Got some stuff done around the house. Yeah, it was a pretty good day. Good.
1: Yeah, I, I always think, um, you know, you when you write poorly, um, it can feel like a waste of time, but it never is. As long as you're in front of the computer, it's never really a waste of time. You learn something through whatever failure you happen to write today. Um, and sometimes you got to write the bad shit to get to the good shit. Like a, lo- a yeah. lot of times it's, I know something needs to happen in this scene or in this moment. Let's try this. This doesn't work and it's a process of elimination. Or something bad, you know, maybe you'll take a nugget out of that. That will lead to something good or will lead to what you intended. Like you you knew that the idea was in there. You just had to dig around and type away on the keyboard until you find
0: it. Yeah, exactly. So it wasn't a waste of time, but it you know it was sort of a frustrating bit getting there. But you know, thankfully, I think I'm in a in better shape for tomorrow, so that's probably all that matters.
1: Um, but you mentioned uh, you were talking on the phone with some family. How is your daughter doing?
0: Uh, she's good. I every time I talk to her, she just sounds very bored. I think that's really the mm. kind of impression I'm getting from her. She just like has nothing to do. You know, like kind of like us. It's like, yeah, thankfully, I we have projects that we work on or, you know, like you are enjoy reading. I mean, she draws a lot, so she does that. And she talks to friends online and she has homework to do. She's a very good and artist.
1: Think, I've seen some of her drawings. She's very talented.
0: Yeah, but I mean, even that, I wish that she would. Um, I mean, it doesn't really matter. I wish that she would kind of like focus it a little bit more, maybe like, because I think she's still just kind of sketching a lot. And while I think that's great, I kind of wish that she would... You know, try to do something a little bit more than just the sketching. Um, I mean, she says that she is, but she's a little nervous to share it with me, so I don't really know. Um, but we'll see. I'll hopefully, one day I can see a comic that she says she's working on. And uh, yeah, I love that she's creative. So at least she has that outlet. But she's like, she's not the type to binge watch TV shows. Really, uh, she's not really it's into probably that. for the best. Um, yeah, I mean, well, she'll just sit on the computer and watch YouTube shows. So, like, I think that's the difference between us. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I think she's just mostly bored. I feel kind of bad because she has less than a month of school left. And so basically her summer is once again like, well, you're still sticking at home. Because I just saw that Governor DeWine is extending the stay at home quarantine orders for Ohio still. So they're still going to have to go forth with it. But yeah, I feel bad that her summer is not going to be. Much fun. I, I I feel bad for everyone. This this year is just a weird year. Yeah,
1: it's hard for everybody. Uh, obviously, there are varying degrees of the shit that people are going through and what they're in. But obviously, everyone has to be sympathetic and empathetic towards everybody. You mentioned the governor of Ohio extended the stay.
0: Um, yeah, Mike DeWine. From yeah.
1: when to when? What what was it originally? May fifteenth or May first?
0: Yeah, I think it was May. I'd have to, let me look it up really quick. He, because um... they were, there was talk
1: of Ohio possibly reopening very soon, like a, a cautious, a cautious, um, soft reopening of the state, which I thought, which I thought was kind of crazy, um, for Ohio because they had that massive outbreak. Was it at a, uh, was it at a prison or a nursing home? In Ohio there was one specific location that, uh, I'm not sure that had 200 plus cases somewhere I mean obviously it was I guess
0: you t- know I mean I, I know it, it's weird I actually have um, met Mike DeWine a number of times and uh, hey, he actually was during
1: at- your old job yeah. as a reporter
0: Yeah, that was, as a reporter, I uh, talked to him for a couple things and a couple of people that worked for the uh, governor's office. And then, and I, because that was one of the weird parts of being a reporter is that you kind of, like, I talked to Sherrod Brown several times. And you're like, it's weird that I just casually get a call a senator today. But uh, it's not, it's pretty common if you're working in the news. Um, And also, apparently Mike DeWine is through like a cousin of a cousin related to us. Like he was at my cousin's wedding Uh, last year it was weird it was weird walking into the uh the hall the wedding banquet hall it was actually a cafeteria to be honest but um it was uh, the cafeteria thing at the school uh, where they were holding it and I walked in there I was like why is the governor here Jesus and uh my mom had to explain to me that he's related to my aunt and or his wife is related to my aunt I should say and uh, yeah, but he's actually—I'm reading—I know he's gotten good marks, and I've actually, as someone who's very liberal, have been quite surprised by my liking of Mike DeWine, generally. Um, obviously, not so much in the specifics of, like, policies, but in terms of attitude and the way he approaches things, I've been shockingly surprised, uh, just because uh, events like—there the, was the mass shooting in Dayton uh, last year, yeah. and there's there were chants— uh, several days later, he went to visit the neighborhood and there was a gathering and there were chance uh, of do something. And a couple weeks went by and he came out and said that really moved me. And he enacted a bunch of uh, executive orders and laws uh, to, for gun violence and mental health and uh, took a stand against the NRA. And I was I was like, wow. Like uh, Now, to be specific, some of those laws weren't necessarily to my liking. And I don't think they were necessarily the right steps in all directions. And I don't think they addressed all of the issues. But I was like, wow, he actually did so – he, you know, he made the gesture way more than many others do. And I'm looking at him now, and apparently he's the highest-rated governor um, of all – has the highest approval rating of any governor handling the pandemic right now. Um, he's very popular in Ohio right now because he's doing daily briefings with this lady named uh, Dr. Something. I, she's a big I, – I wish I – I'm not really around watching it, but they're doing – uh daily briefings and giving a lot of information and apparently he's been very popular
1: is doctor but, is d- doctor also a doctor or is that just her name
0: no her name they gave her a fun name and that's why i'm blanking on it. i don't know her real name because but her name's like dr action or something like that everyone who's listening is probably yelling at me because they watch it every day nobody's listening but, don't worry it's okay um yeah, he does. I I, I'm, I can't find it really quickly. Well, so I'll just move on and pretend. Uh, what I what, yeah, what he, I was
1: referencing, uh, this is an article. I mean, it's every it was everywhere last week. But I'm looking specifically at an article from April 20th on NPR. 73 percent of inmates at an Ohio prison test positive for coronavirus. Yeah, um, a state prison. Uh, has become the a hotspot of the COVID-19 outbreak in Ohio with at least 1,828 confirmed cases among inmates, which accounted for the majority of cases in Marion County, which leads Ohio in the reported number of infections. So yeah, and, and, and this mass state prison is just ravaged with the coronavirus. Pretty, pretty crazy.
0: Yeah, that's happened across the country. I've heard of a number of, like Harvey Weinstein has the coronavirus. Yeah,
1: Weinstein got it. Um, yeah, prisons, um, nursing home centers. Uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of confined areas. Which, as someone who lives in a giant apartment complex, I, makes me nervous. But that's okay. Um, so yeah, that I had heard that, and they were they were dealing with that. Now, obviously. There there are reports all around the country of a lot of uh, incarcerated men and women being let go because of fears of the coronavirus. You know, people with um, certain minor offenses or people who may be at health risks are being released from jail. I don't think that's happening quite as much now. I think it was happening a lot earlier in the outbreak. But yeah, a place like that where um, they're obviously stuck there, it's going to spread. I mean, I guess... That means the cases will be relatively contained in the spread. Um, Worry is lessened, but you know, there are obviously uh, security guards, prison guards there, staff members, there, administration. I mean, I'm looking in this other article, you know, this one place alone had over 1,800 as of a week ago. So I'm sure it's higher now. There are 2,400 plus coronavirus cases, among inmates in Ohio's state prisons statewide and about 250 staff members. So those staff members who obviously can come and go, um, are obviously at risk to spread it, but that's good that they, um, that Ohio increased the stay at home. I think that's, that's good news.
0: Yeah. They extended it. And, uh, apparently right now, Ohio is at 18,000 cases and 975 deaths. um, and here's but by the way here I I feel very dumb uh for what I said earlier because I just now realized this that I was doing this this whole time I've been under the impression that they've given this woman some nickname like Dr. Action like it was like some cool nickname her name is Dr. Amy Acton A-C-T-O-N I just have in my brain every time I see her name on TV have been adding an I and calling her Dr. Action oh boy (laughs) So I think Doctor Action's a better name, personally. We are not. Than Dr. Uh, Action. We are not a
1: news and information podcast. Let's just make that. But i cr-
0: <laughs> The difference is that I'm telling you that I was wrong and uh, actually fessing up to it. That's true. Those pieces of shit. Yes, that's very true. Uh, I- I'm correcting myself. This is my correction. Her name is Doctor Amy Acton. She's doing daily press briefings with Governor Mike DeWine. They've both apparently been doing a uh, pretty well received job, um, even though you know there is still. O- almost a thousand deaths just in Ohio. So yes, they have extended the stay at home orders and um uh, Yeah, the Bell's original mother... the
1: original uh stay was supposed to end on May first, which is tomorrow. And yeah. he put that in place, Governor DeWine, on April second. He announced today that they were extending the stay at home with exceptions, but there is no specific date for when the the new extension would uh Run through when it would end. Well, I've,
0: I, you know, I still follow all the news sites from back home because I had to follow them for work, and they're all still kind of attached to my account, so I still see them constantly. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing tons of articles about, like, one of them was bar opener has a sign that says, "We're opening June 1st, whether the government says so or not." Basically, like there is starting to be this kind of growing, you know, like thing from businesses and this kind of backlash of you both I think that's sensible and also like I understand that it's their job and they don't have any money and they're pay- they have rent to pay and also they're just kind of sick of being held down but also you're kind of like I'm sorry man like th- almost a, you know a thousand people are dead in the state right now yeah. like we can't we can't control it and we don't know when we can so you know it's it's really tough but I can you know I'm starting to see articles of like bars and restaurants and small businesses that are really pushing back and being like, we can't stay closed any longer, man. Like let us like make exceptions of somehow, you know, like let, let us do one haircut at a time or something like that. I don't know what the answer is.
1: Yeah. There's a, there's a very fine line. I mean, there's obviously a lot of that happening. You know, you saw the protests happening in Michigan, uh, in Florida and Georgia, a lot of the Southern states, a lot of um, conservative states and counties and a lot of swing states and counties particularly is where that's happening. Since we're talking about Ohio uh, particularly, they do have a phase, I mean several phases, but a timeline for the first gradual reopening of Ohio. And starting tomorrow, May 1st, healthcare procedures that do not require an overnight hospital stay in Ohio can move forward. Uh, starting May 4th, manufacturing, distribution, and construction will reopen. Also on May 4th, general general offices will be able to reopen and companies are asked to have employees work from home if possible. On May 12th, retail businesses with employees and customers wearing masks and businesses that reopen will need to employ safe business practices, whatever vague that statement is. Um, Businesses like salons, gyms, and restaurants will have to wait to see how the first reopening goes so that is what is now on the table for ohio um speaking of coronavirus news this broke today i don't know if you saw this
0: are you going to talk about la county versus la city the news by the way with the testing i was going to ask that is about
1: exactly that. what i was going to bring up yes that uh okay cool, now cool. now in la county Everyone can get a test, supposedly a free coronavirus test, whether they exhibit symptoms or not. No, no matter what, there is no longer any restrictions. What did you want to say about it? You obviously had something on your mind.
0: Uh, I was confused because I was watching the local news today. um, As I was looking for the Parks and Rec on NBC, I was watching the news, and I was—they were trying to explain. uh, LA City is saying no. We're we're still very—we're not treating this the same as LA County. And I was confused about... They were still saying, like, we're, you still have to be showing symptoms. We're, we're not just giving tests out to everybody. Like, there is a difference. We're not treating this the same as the entire county is. So I don't know if it's within L.A. I think you might have to go elsewhere. I'm not sure. I, I just saw that on local news. I haven't looked more into it, but I was confused by it.
1: Interesting. I'm looking at... Uh, I just did a quick Google search. I'm trying to find something updated because... Uh, As far as I can see, Los Angeles City and County offer free coronavirus testing. That was from a news article 23 hours ago. Um, I mean, that just may be. I mean, it's a it's a direct um, statement from Mayor Garcetti that free COVID-19 testing is available to any LA County resident. Um, Blah 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 blah. While Prime. Uh, excuse me, while priority will still be given to those with symptoms, individuals without symptoms can also be tested. There's a sign up website. If you live in LA County, coronavirus.lacity.org testing. I did read that. Um, I think there's a form you have to fill out, you know, if you have symptoms, if you've been in contact with a known person who has tested positive for the virus And if not, you know, if you're asymptomatic, if you don't know anyone who has it, if you've been social distancing, I guess it was um, for a while anyway, I don't know if this has changed. It said that there were no appointments available, and I believe that was just kind of barring people initially while the site is up and running on its first day um, from taking the first few testing spots, you know, in, in case people are sick or something and need to be tested. But I'm not seeing anything that bans LA City proper. I mean, that could just be, you know, an idea, an inverse of the idea of, you know, weed is legal in California, but it's illegal federally still, that sort of thing. Um,
0: Yeah, it's such a weird, I mean, I, I keep seeing, like I'm looking at, I saw a thing on Huntington Beach votes to challenge Newsom's order about closing the beaches. I saw something on that earlier, and there was interviews with people at the beach who were just like, uh, your man, they're trying to take away my, my rights. And I was like, you don't have the fucking right to go to the beach. There's nothing in the constitution about that. Like, just shut the fuck up. I don't know. It's really annoying me. Yeah. And especially when people talk about their rights, I, especially when they're like "Oh, freedom of speech, man, I'm like, that's not what that means. You know, you fucking moron. <laughs> I, that, that's been very annoying to me lately is when I hear people say stuff like that, like, oh man, they're infringing on my rights. I'm like, what rights? Tell me what rights you have. Like, there's nothing about. You have the right to go to the fucking mall when you want to. That's not how laws work in America, and that's not how the Constitution works. And I feel like people just kind of generally feel like the Constitution gives them the right to do whatever they want, which is like, no, that's not true. And, you know, we live within a society of laws, as we're told so many times. And I, I guess, I don't know. It's been very frustrating for me I, with all, I, I know there's confusing information out there in terms of like, well, is it city versus County, et cetera. And what are we allowed to do and when, but seeing people just take it for granted and be so dismissive of it has been a uh, pretty discouraging to me lately. It's been at least this week. Yeah.
1: It's been very discouraging. I think um, there has been a lot of that uh, frankly nonsense. I get that there's a lot of frustration and a lot of confusion and you know, Americans, by and large, do not like to be told what to do. Um, a lot of people take great pride in the fact that we're the, quote-unquote, land of the free, home of the brave, and all that jingoistic bullshit. Um,
0: yeah, of course. You know,
1: there's obviously a lot of good to the country. I'm being sarcastic, but I will say uh, it is very frustrating when you see the first warm-weather weekend in L.A. and suddenly the beaches are packed again. I do know... Um, that we just had the the largest single day increase in uh, new confirmed cases in LA um, that just happened yesterday. Um, that's probably in large part due to the you know the wide increase in testing availability across the city. Yeah, that
0: would be my that was going to be my guess was if they're expanding testing, that's why the numbers are going up. Exactly,
1: um, because yeah. I I don't think that there is. Um, Uh, a huge uptick in hospitalization. Um, I'm reading here. LA County Health Department confirmed another 1,541 cases, its largest single-day increase since the start of the pandemic. It also reported 56 additional deaths because of the coronavirus. Health officials say despite the uptick, the rate of hospitalization and death in the county has remained steady. LA County now has a total of nearly 22,500 confirmed cases accounting for nearly half of California's more than 46,000. Um, yeah, and LA was um, infamously very slow to test. You know, they they had a, a dearth of testing kits available, and they were very strict for a very long time in the early stages of this of this outbreak about who could be tested, who qualified, and who didn't. It's great I think it's great news that they are trying to make testing available to everyone across the board. That's the best way to get us out of this as quickly as possible. For all the people who are upset, and understandably so, about having to be stuck at home, not being able to work, all of that. Wanting the country to reopen and start up again, get the economy going again. The best, quickest way to do that, it has to be through testing Testing has to be done everywhere on a large scale. There's no other way to know when it's safe to do certain things. So this is a great step. I think it's awesome. I'm glad we live in the city where that's happening. Hopefully it means good news. What it probably means is we're going to see a lot of new confirmed cases and it's going to look like a new surge is happening in LA when it probably isn't just because more and more people who are asymptomatic are being tested. But the good news is once they know that, they can stay isolated and they won't be going to the beaches anymore because they feel healthy, not realizing they have the coronavirus. So hopefully this is a great step towards, um, you know, an eventual return to normalcy or whatever that may mean in the future.
0: Well, you know why we really need to get the testing going? Why is that? Is so that me and you can go to the fucking movies.
1: <laughs> tell me about it, bro.
0: All right. Speaking of that, let's move on to our first topic. Uh, We talked in the last episode, you were just we were kind of casually speculating like, hey, what's Netflix going to do? What's the Academy going to do with this year of streaming? Since it doesn't look like there's going to be very many movies coming out in theaters. And we got our answer this week, didn't we, Tom? We
1: sure did. What
0: timing by us. Yeah, we're we're on it. We are the pulse of this country. And, all right, uh, I'm going to read from The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, this was kind of the first big drop, I guess, in, or I guess to give some context. Let's give some context first. Um, basically, the theaters have shut down, and as we talked about last week, the multiple studios, mostly universal at this point, have allowed their titles to be purchased and then go into streaming. So titles such as uh, The Way Back, which we're going to talk about in a bit, titles such as Emma, um What else was there? There was another The Hunt and something else. Trolls World Tour. And and Trolls World (laughs) Tour. It's it's very hard to
1: say. Okay, on the count of three, let's say it at the same time. One, two, three.
0: Trolls Trolls World World Tour. Tour.
1: Yeah. Trolls World Tour. That's a, wow.
0: Say it fast. Trolls World Tour. Trolls
1: World Tour. Trolls World Tour. Trolls (laughs) World Tour. uh, Candyman, Candyman, Candyman.
0: Yeah, so, okay. So, Trolls World Tour came out. And, um, basically the reason that they did that was because they are saying like, look, we have this movie, it's finished. We were going to release it anyway. We have to push back all these other titles. And we know that there's this demand right now for new entertainment, especially for families with kids. So we're going to release trolls early. We're going to make it be available. So we're going to skip all the theaters. We're just going to let it be available. And in doing this, Universal has really pissed off uh particular amc uh the theater chains do not like it because they have deals in place with theaters about uh they're called windows the theater windows that movies are going to stay in theaters usually it's around 30 to 90 days depending on the scope of the movie and basically during that time the studios agree to keep the movies in theaters worldwide and they split the cost between uh, theaters and studios so they help each other it's a mutually beneficial relationship the theaters obviously need movies to be shown to bring in the audiences, and the movie studios need theaters to show these worldwide. And because of a law in 1948 with Paramount, they teach this in, like, Film History 101, uh, this Paramount decision basically broke up movie theaters because they used to be owned by uh, the studios. But then they uh, it was decided in the uh, Supreme Court that that was a monopoly, and because movie studios were able to control so much about you know, what was able to play and they just had so much control and were able to bully people and, you know, ruin people's lives with kind of this control and they were able to like raise prices and they just had way too much power. And think of think of how
1: few indie films would be playing at theaters around the world if they were just all owned by the movie studios, you know?
0: Yeah, so basically in the f- late 40s, uh, it's called the Paramount Decree, that broke up the relationship between movie theaters and movie studios. So that is why they currently, if in case anyone out there is w- wondering why movie theaters don't just own all the or movie studios don't just own the theaters. That's why they're not allowed to. So they are stuck in this kind of mutual relationship where they need each other. And right now with the kind of growth of streaming and Netflix and the availability that the internet has allowed for access to movies, you know, it's really fucked with that relationship. And now we're kind of, as we talked about last week in phase one of a fight that was kind of warming up over the last few years as Netflix's reach has expanded.
1: A fight that, not, not even a fight. Uh, 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 let's see, a, t- a tipping point or a, a conversation that was going to have to be had between the two industries at some point suddenly went from zero miles per hour to 10 miles per hour after a few years to suddenly it's at 100. I mean, it skyrocketed between our last record and this one.
0: Yeah. And here's, I'm going to read a little bit from the Hollywood reporter because, uh, and then we'll talk about the math and why this is the, I sent you the link to this and kind of said like, there's a lot in here that's not being said yes. both on both sides. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And uh, so here it is. earlier in the day, universal revealed that trolls world tour <laughs> uh, rack, racked up an estimated hundred million in premium VOD rentals in the first three weeks in North America, more than enough to put the road to more than enough to put the film on the road to profitability and that's not far behind the 116 million grossed by the original trolls in its first three weeks at the domestic box office on its way to topping out at 153 million in the u.s and canada and nearly 347 million globally not adjusted for inflation so basically trolls comes out and in three weeks makes 100 million dollars on vod and they're saying in that same three week period that's close to what it made in theaters and instead of having to split those profits 50 50 now theaters get it or studios get to keep 80 percent, as opposed to 50 percent. they still have to give a little bit to these platforms that are streaming but they're keeping a bigger chunk so people in this article they're positing that it's going to be more uh, more lucrative for studios to go to streaming and kind of sever this relationship with theaters but we know that's not necessarily true tom tell me why
1: Well, people love going to the movie theaters. They have for decades at this point. They have since the advent of cinema. Now, to be fair, and it's a totally valid argument, and um, there's a great discussion to be had. Never before until the last 10 years has there been something to battle movie theaters in such a way as streaming. We've had televisions enter the home. We've had VHS enter the home and Blu-ray enter the home. Streaming is a different beast entirely. Because it is the most accessible means for the most number of people to watch something. More than when television was introduced. More than when home video was introduced or when cable was introduced. It just... it. The internet is everywhere streaming. You don't even need specifically a TV to watch something. You can do it on a computer. You can do it on a phone. So I get all that.
0: Plus TVs have gotten to a point where, not that it can rival the theatrical experience, but it's certainly different than say it was in the 60s. Yes, you
1: know. your, your, home, your home theater set up 25 years ago, if it was really nice, was a 27-inch giant box. Um, and maybe if you were super... Rich, you had a separate speaker set up. Otherwise, you just listened to the movie you were watching through the television speakers. Now you can have a 65-inch flat screen mounted on your wall, even with a $200 sound bar that duplicates 5.1 surround or 7.1 surround at this point, or DTS sound. So there, there are a lot of advantages to watching stuff at home. But theaters are something that is relatively cheap entertainment. And more than anything, I think the big thing people uh, who are calling the death of the theatrical experiment right now are forgetting is that you can never duplicate the experience of seeing a movie on a big screen with a group of people. That's just something unique to the theater experience. You can't get that at home. You can get the movies at home, but you can't get the experience at home. It's like listening to your favorite band's record on Spotify at home or on vinyl or in your car while you drive driving around versus going to see the band in concert. There's just a different experience there that beyond a higher quality of experience you're having with the art form itself, it's the actual act of going and experiencing it with other people that simply can never be replicated at home. Now, this may cut into the home or I'm sorry, the theatrical experience somewhat. I think it already has. You know, I, I know people who used to go to the theater a lot more than they do now, and I know people who hate going to see movies in theaters. They hate the crowd. They're wrong. They, they are wrong, but they hate the crowds. They hate the inflated price. They hate people talking. They hate the sound of people chewing candy and rustling their plastic wrappers and all that shit. And I get it.
0: They're doing it wrong. Yeah. They're.
1: But I, yeah. I, I get the frustration. There's a lot of dumb assholes who go to theaters and just talk through it and just don't have basic human decency. But you can...
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. You
1: you can never erase that experience completely. So this Trolls World Tour hit VOD not out of, um, hey, we have this new platform that's going to give us an even bigger profit or match our profits. It happened because of the coronavirus pandemic. It happened out of necessity because theaters had to shut down. Now, obviously, the profits that Trolls World Tour hit um, blew them away. And that's, that's great news for them. I'm happy for them. I'm glad if families are able to get some entertainment out of watching Trolls 2 at home. Um, that's all great. And I think that's another option that's interesting and something worth pursuing. But the idea that you are almost able to match the profit of the first movie in a sequel at home because everybody is stuck at home and cannot go to the theater does not mean that this is the new normal.
0: I agree, yeah. And that's, I was going to say, just, sorry, you can finish your point if you want. Well,
1: and that's why, um, the last thing I'll say before I, I hand it back over to you, and that's why I think the reaction from AMC is insane. I think the way they handle this is completely insane.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll 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 end my little thing with that. So just to pick up on what you were saying, here is why I, I of course, agree with you that people love going to the movie theaters. There's always going to be that hunger for people to go. And that's one reason that that's not going to go away. And one of the reasons we know that is because just listen to the math that I told you during that sentence. Uh, here, I'll reread it. Uh, it racked up an estimated $100 million in its first three weeks. That's not far behind the $116 gross by the original and its domestic box office on its way to topping 153 And then it just casually drops in n- where it made nearly $347 million globally. So what it's not taking into account, that $100 million that it made on video on demand is n- nothing compared to the $347 million it made internationally. And this... Video on demand limits that in a way that for one thing, it's trolls. And like you were saying, people are stuck in home, stuck at home and they're clamoring for this a little bit more than they probably would have. Otherwise this trolls would not have done this kind of numbers had it been released this way without the pandemic. And there's a reason why things like Captain Marvel and uh, fast and furious nine and James Bond and all of those have been pushed back. They're not dumping those movies right now because they know that the profit margins are going to be so much bigger if they do release them in theaters worldwide. And that's going to, if they have success in theaters, that is going to increase the demand of it on demand. And that is going to increase the demand of it on physical media and increase the demand of it uh, for channels to want to purchase it, to play on their channels or on their streaming services, etc. Like the theater experience is still for many filmmakers, uh, the gold standard because of the way it kind of, if it's successful don't get me wrong a million movies a year go through it and get completely forgotten and really only like what 10 a year probably get remembered 20 get remembered out of every year long term but you know those movies played in theaters probably and people have a different relationship when they see something on screen and i think the numbers just don't like you said one trolls is a kids entertainment that is going to have a built-in audience it's a sequel and there's this pandemic going on. That's not going to happen, let's say, next year if they just decide to release, you know, a new, you know, whatever, Ferdinand 2 on fucking Straits of VOD. It's not going to do that well. You know, and and yeah, that's all. That's all I was going to say, except, yeah, that the comments by Universal seem completely to me like deal-making in public. It's using the press to kind of like set standards there. It's kind of just a pissing contest. It reminded me of... The way Sony made that stand against Marvel with Spider-Man, you know, where they're like, oh, sorry, there's going to be no more Marvel Spider-Man movies. And everyone freaked out for three weeks. And then they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, there are.
1: Yeah, I think they'll both collect their heads Uh, after this. Just this weird blowout they both had where Universal basically came out and said, you know, like, maybe this is the future. And AMC said, we'll no longer show Universal movies in our theater. Uh, And then um, Universal kind of backtracked again and said, you know, we're just implying it's something to think about in the future. Let's all hold our horses here. Um, And of course
0: they are. It makes total sense for them to think about it. Yeah, it
1: will have to be a discussion when contracts get renewed. And that's part of the evolution of the medium and business (laughs) in general and how things work everywhere. The biggest thing, the biggest thing people have to remember, and this is just a fundamental about humanity People are a social bunch. We just are. And we may be coming more and more isolated and more and more homebody in our behavior. But at the end of the day, people want to go out. And think, uh, no matter how well Trolls World Tour did on VOD, like, what is the one major thing you hear from every single person during this coronavirus? How fucking bored they are at home. Everyone is bored. Everyone wants to get the fuck
0: out of the house. Especially if you have four little ones like in there with you. Yes.
1: And the idea right now, someone like you and me who go to the movie way more than the average person, put us aside. Okay. We'll always be going to the movie theater and there are millions of people like you and me. Uh, Maybe not to the extent that we are, but there are at least thousands like you and me and millions who always enjoy going to the theater at least a couple times a year think yeah. think think of the joy the average person is going to have maybe not the first time they go back to the movie theater when they may be a little nervous but once we're back in the swing of things just the joy of being able to go out to the ho- go out of the house and have dinner and a movie somewhere just that that simple idea of an affordable night out where you're not breaking the bank you're getting entertained and you're just leaving your house for a while there's so much to be said for that variance in your day-to-day life And we're seeing it now. Like, Trolls World Tour made that money because we can't go anywhere. We just cannot go anywhere. Once we're allowed to leave the house, all this stuff is going to start back up again. Like, think about my favorite band, um, Fish.
0: Fish, yeah.
1: They've never had a hit record. They've never made money selling CDs. But they are one of the most profitable, profitable bands in the world because people go to their concerts. They can't sell an album but they can sell out Madison Square Garden for 13 nights in a row. You know what I mean?
0: And they do that like multiple times, not 13 nights, but they do sell out Madison Square Garden like what, at least three times a year? They do
1: four nights every year around New Year's and the show sells out every single night.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. There's just an experience
1: of going to something like that, of seeing the thing you enjoy in the greatest way possible that you can never replicate at home. You just can't. And even to use Fish again as an example, they have started this thing called, uh, and I know other bands do it as well, where they, they will live stream, uh, a lot of their concerts live through their website. And you can pay, um, you know, maybe a, a third of the price of a ticket. You know, if a tick if a concert ticket to go see them is still, I think it's like 60 bucks. And for 20, you can stream the concert live in high def at home. And I, I love that. I know tons of my friends who are fish fans love that. We love... It's called... You just call it couch tour. Like, I'm just watching the show at home. At set break, I don't have to go through a huge crowd of drugged-out wooks <laughs> trying to, like, take a shit in the hallways. I can just go use my own bathroom, grab a beer from the kitchen, sit back on the couch and watch it. That's a great substitute. That's a great alternative. But it is not going to replace the main thing. You know what I mean? And I think the the film studio's are going to be able to use streaming at home, which has already been used as a day and date platform for a lot of movies. I mean, that's a huge model for indie films right now and a lot of genre films. They'll release it in theaters in a couple cities and then they'll put it directly to rent. That's what we did with Coyote Lake. Coyote Lake played in 10 or 12 cities in theaters, like one theater per city, uh, in the first weekend of August and it then that was yeah
0: that that was it weirdly sorry to interrupt that was weirdly when I was gonna go see it in theaters, but that was the weekend of the mass shooting in Dayton, yes, <laughs> which we
1: we never talked about um because we weren't recording at the time,
0: yeah, but. yeah, um, but yeah, it was um uh. It was a, it was a wild time, but yeah, I, I remember like, I, I obviously watched the movie the weekend it came out, but I was like going to go see it a second time in theaters. Right. And then of course that, that happened. And I was like, Oh, nope, I'm, I'm locked down at my job for a while. Yes,
1: totally understandable. But uh, I mean, what I'm saying is, so, sorry to interrupt. No, no, yeah. no, of course. Um, and you know, that, that works really well for certain movies. And in that instance, for that example, um, the streaming at home is super, super valuable for a movie like Coyote Lake because it's just not going to get the play of other major movies in theaters. And I understand why, you know, like a lot of you can't afford to go to the movies every weekend. It's a smaller film. The vast majority of people are going to see that at home. We understand that. That's a new part of the film industry. But for the major releases, the big action movies, the big A list star movies, the big. Oscar bait films. People are just going to, they're going to want to go see that in theaters with other people and talk about it. It's just the way it is. It's the way it's always been. It's not going to change. This is not going to change.
0: Yeah. If anything, I think this is just the first phase fa- five years from now, it's going to be totally different. The way release strategies and platforms are done through uh, movie theaters and studios and streaming, because I think like you said, everything's going to remain intact, but changed a little bit in that, Uh, We're probably going to have more limited choices in terms of big budget movies that do play internationally. They're probably going to stick more and more to larger budgets and Avenger style movies uh, that are big. Whereas, uh, you know, these smaller ones, you might see them. I think the concern is that if they are going to have this strategy of direct to VOD and skipping theaters with some of their maybe more mid tier titles it's like well hopefully they can find an audience there that, that maybe they could have found in theaters because i think the example i use it's like i don't know if a get out happens if it's not in theaters you know if that just gets dumped on shutter you know like it probably nothing happens you know
1: no i mean i don't necessarily agree with that i think the the really great movies always break out and if you look at it from say netflix's point of view right They've become a titan of the industry that's able to match any major film studio by completely doing it all through streaming, right? Right. There are always going to be those big Marvel, Superhero, Star Wars titles that are going to make billions of dollars in theaters. Those are the movies that keep the studios and the home video platforms and the movie theaters in the black. Now, we've seen, um, you know, filmmakers who make. Those eight-figure movies, those $20, $15, 30000000 million budget movies like the Coen Brothers are starting to go to Netflix. The Soderberghs of the world are starting to go to Netflix. That stuff makes sense. And I think eventually, if the studios are smart, they'll figure out a way to implement that and integrate that into their system. And that may hurt theaters a little bit, but it's not going to be the difference between keeping the lights on or off. Like the, a Coen Brothers release... Every two and a half years, except for maybe True Grip, which you know was a surprise hit and made a hundred million dollars. That's not going to be the difference between a movie theater keeping its lights on or off. It's going to be playing Black Panther two for three months or four months. That's right. That's, yeah. that's where they're going to make their money, and they'll still be able to do that because people are always going to go see Black Panther two in theaters. There's just gonna All right. there's just gonna be more of the mid tier slash lower budget films using social and i think or i'm sorry using streaming and uh yeah everyone will adapt and adjust change is good get it up to the masses
0: all right well with that in mind let's stay on the subject of streaming and kind of talk about the way uh netflix and all them have been now kind of having to adjust the new academy award rules that just got announced so there was a few uh changes that were announced this week um from the academy uh sort of Several of them were geared towards the broadcast in terms of category changes, but some of them were about eligibility in terms of what movies they'll allow And Last week we talked about how maybe movies don't play in theaters, and that's a requirement of movies to be nominated for an Academy Award, and how are they going to deal with that? So they released uh, a list of changes and rules this week, and uh, basically I think what's interesting, one, they released the rule that they are going to allow movies that go straight to streaming Uh, to be eligible for this year only. They're making sure that it's a one year only thing. I think they're going to make like probably a big to do next year about like making sure that they don't, you know, like do it again, unless like something crazy, like the virus is still happening. I hope not. But um, they also, uh, the big thing that they did was implement a rule that says it's not just every movie, but they, they want, it has to have been proven that the movie was already planned to go to theaters. That's kind of the caveat. I don't know if you saw that, but like your bad education that was picked up at a festival and premiered on HBO this past week will not be eligible because HBO never had any intention of releasing that in a theater. So it's not like Hugh Jackman can all of a sudden be nominated for best actor. So there still has to be some kind of, you were going to send this to theaters. And so I think like something like Netflix's Mank what we were the David Fincher movie that we were talking about last week you have those ones that Netflix the the few that they do try to release in theaters where I think probably with those bigger names like your Ron Howard's and Spike Lee's I, I would imagine some of those already had theatrical release stuff in their contracts because um, so many of them do like, like when Martin Scorsese probably wasn't going to make the Irishman unless they promised him a couple weeks in theaters at least you know and so I think that's gonna how it's going to be going forward at least this year um, so that should be interesting. Uh, you know, we'll see w- what the the actual effect is and how releases pan out for the rest of the year. but you know, we're still gonna have some movies.
1: yeah, definitely. I know last week I said that uh, I thought the rule was it had to play in either New York or l a for a week um when when the rule changes came out this past week, um so apparently the the rule was it had to at least play in one theater in Los Angeles. For, for a for week, a week yeah. to qualify for the Academy Awards uh, on top of the rule changes they made. They're also expanding the number of cities that would be eligible. So instead of just playing in L.A. for a week, if your theater plays in New York for a week or if it plays in Houston for a week, there are a few other cities like that.
0: Um, yeah, it says the Bay, the Bay Area, Chicago, Miami and Atlanta. OK,
1: yeah. Uh, uh, and New York and L.A., obviously. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. OK. So they're expanding that as well, which is good. Yeah. Um, I think obviously it's great. I think you just had to make that rule change at least for this year. We'll see if they continue that rule or i i I still think I don't know if they're gonna go just back to the way it was next year. I feel like there's gonna be some implementation of the new rules. Obviously, the city expansion um, for what is eligible will stay that that's not something coronavirus specific. but uh I, I don't know. I feel like. Once we open this Pandora's box about what's eligible and what isn't, it's going to be hard to shut it off. You know, maybe they're able to go back to it next year, but I feel like it's going to be an uphill battle to keep it at that restriction. I don't I don't know. Oh, that's, yeah. that's just my opinion. But... Um.
0: Yeah. And there are there are other rules that I think are probably really super insidery stuff that really probably we only care about. Like uh, they eliminated DVD screeners, which makes me sad. Um, I mean, there's still going to be a a screener code, you know, for people to stream it on their on websites and stuff. But, you know, I was looking forward to DVD screener season out here.
1: Oh, so Academy members and stuff uh, or guild members, they're no longer going to get DVDs.
0: No, it says in an effort to be more sustainable, the board uh, voted to eliminate the screeners. Uh, such, I guess, a TV branch already did this for like the Emmys and stuff. So,
1: no, no more DVDs or Blu-rays. It's just going to be links.
0: Yeah, it's all links from here on out. No. Yeah.
1: Oh man, I have, I get screeners every year.
0: I well see that's the thing. Like I'm in Film Independent, and one of the reasons, uh, among many, that I signed up was because you get you put on the screener list and I was like, fuck yeah, I'm going to get some screeners. And so I hope that I'm going to get links now, but you know, we'll see.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're eligible to get screeners, I would expect to be able
0: to get links that, that, um, yeah, dude, that was like the first thing I did when I moved out to LA, I was like, let me, I know that there's other like like water and electricity and groceries (laughs) and such, but let me say it is. It's it's
1: very fun, especially when you get the first couple screeners of the season, like when you realize screener season hits the, the funny thing is though, in the last few years, obviously, which is when I've uh, started being able to uh, watch screeners. So many of them are like Netflix titles that you're already subscribing to and can watch in high definition streaming anyway. But, um, Yeah, it's super fun, especially when there's that one kind of indie or art house well-reviewed title that you just didn't get a chance to go see in theaters, but it's not available to rent yet. And then suddenly the screener just shows up and you're like, oh, hell yeah, I can watch Honey Boy. This is great.
0: Yeah. Well, um, I I think we have more to say, but I think we're we're already an hour in and and we haven't even started talking about The Last Dance. And I suspect we have a lot to say about that. So is there anything else you wanted to say about the... The Academy Award rulings or anything else you were really important to you oh, to cover? No,
1: the only thing, um, the the only other kind of big Academy Award news is they did shrink. They um, combined this, the two sound Oscars, sound mixing and sound editing, have now been combined to just best sound. And I guess the editors and mixers will still be nominated uh, in that yeah, category, they, you, but it's just one category now.
0: Yeah, they, they can give up to six statues in the category now. Yeah,
1: which I'm, I'm kind of, I told you via text, I'm kind of bummed about as a guy who worked in the sound industry uh, and enjoyed, I, I worked on the sound mixing side of things, so sound mixing was the category. I was always very excited to see who the nominees were because um, there were a lot of people that I worked for and um, helped make sure they were happy in the studio. But um, yeah, yeah it, that that's it. Um, I guess it'll make the, the Oscars run two minutes faster there's still a lot of things they could do we've talked about it they should add stunts um but yeah that's it i'm done
0: okay cool all right tom without further ado let's talk about the last dance you guys not allowed no i'm just kidding (laughs) what time is it three
1: my mentality was to go out and win at any cost. The the NBA Jordan is the most talented player in the NBA by far. The show of the 90s, the team of the 90s. How you, How you doing? doing? Whenever they speak Michael Jordan, they should speak Scottie Pippen. We created an image that people want to live up to. I think that's all you can hope for. Let's talk about The Last Dance. Phil, what is The Last Dance?
0: The Last Dance is the new documentary series. There's going to be 10 episodes. Four have aired so far. It's currently Thursday, April 30th. So we have episodes five and six airing on Sunday. And uh, so far, it is... Oh. Continue. All right. The show traces the last years... Of, or the, la- the final year of Michael Jordan on the Chicago Bulls after a championship run that has yet to be paralleled in sports. So, whoa.
1: Alan Parsons project, <laughs> baby.
0: That's right, baby. All right. So the the show goes back and forth between that last season and then kind of jumps back in time to kind of give you context of Jordan's career. It's a career overview. It traces his college years uh, through that final season and all the various characters that surrounded him along the way. Uh, It's it's basically the sports world's biggest news right now, considering there's no sports going on. And anyone who's ever watched a 30 for 30 probably knows the quality of the vast majority of them. And it was, which is this, very good, which is very good. And basically they had announced this. I think I heard about this like almost two years ago when they were like, they're working on this giant Michael Jordan, 10 hour thing. that's going to be similar to the OJ. Yeah. They started uh, airing
1: teasers, uh, like little television commercial teas teasers as, uh, long ago as last summer. I remember starting yeah. to see it on ESPN and stuff like that, during commercials and, you know, basketball and baseball games or whatever.
0: Yeah. So this is a long time coming. And I think it's been, I think may, I don't know if you thought it was weird that I was excited for it because I'm not like a lifelong basketball diehard fan, like the way you are. I, I of course remember Jordan. It was, he was inescapable, which is kind of what this documentary is a little bit about is about just how he became the biggest celebrity in the entire world during this period. And the life that, you know, he was living and how hard it was and how hard he is to be around sometimes. And uh, I, what'd you think? Um,
1: yeah. Well, I just to answer that quick question. I was a little surprised when you told me how excited you were uh, when it was about to air, but it, it also makes sense. I think you're uh you're a guy who likes to learn about things and you're very interested in culture and especially cultural history. So,
0: I like 30 for 30, I I think because I I was excited for a chance to kind of get the context that I'd always wanted for, uh, it's basically really get the timeline down because obviously I know about the fever game and the shot and, you know, some of these bigger moments and Space Jam and him leaving for baseball and uh, Dennis Rodman. I'm obviously aware of all of these things, but to have it kind of laid out for me as someone who was very young during that time and doesn't remember a lot of it or was only half paying attention. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of great to relearn it and re-experience and just to like really see how fucking beautiful of an athlete he was. Like just watching those dunks is so sexy.
1: It, <laughs> and, it really is. I, I wrote down some notes as I was watching the first four. We've both seen the first four. Entries. Yeah, it's, yeah. I,
0: I've been watching as it aired. You've watched the last two days. Tell me what your last two days have been. Yeah.
1: Like. So, um, well, just going off what you just said about watching his highlights. One of the one of the notes that I wrote when I, I'm a huge basketball junkie. I have been my entire life. I I also love the history of basketball, so I've seen a lot of old footage. I've watched entire games from the 1960s when the Celtics, my favorite team as a Massachusetts native, were super dominant. And the, the funny thing is, you watch old basketball highlights, and some of it is so dated. Like, uh, it's always super hard to judge eras, you know, the idea of, like, you know, everyone, you know, the, the big argument now is is Jordan still... LeBron versus Jordan. Yes, yeah. LeBron versus Jordan, who's the greatest player. And, you know, the other, the other people in that conversation, they're guys like Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain, who were dominant in the 60s. And Bill Russell, I love, I think he's one of the greatest players ever, but you cannot compare him to players of this generation. You just go back and look at those highlights of all these white guys who smoked cigarettes uh, at halftime and they would just put up 14 foot jumpers and then run back and then let the other guy put up a 14 foot (laughs) jumper and then run back, you know, but you watch Jordan's highlights from even early on in his career from like 1986. There's an one of the I think it's episode two or th- I think it's episode two, uh, his second season in the league. He hurts he he basically breaks his leg.
0: Um, That's two episode yes, two. Yes, he
1: breaks his yeah. leg the first week of the season, and he comes back and basically forces the team who wanted to tank to get a good draft pick to support Jordan. He's like, no fuck that. I'm here to win. I don't do that. He basically forces their hand. He comes back late in the season gets them to sneak into the playoffs with a horrible record because he's so great, and he puts up 63 points, still the playoff record, by the way, for most points in a playoff game, against the 1986 Boston Celtics in the first round of the playoffs in uh, against the team that ended up winning the title that year. That was the last title the Celtics won until 2008 with Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce. And arguably, the, that 86 Celtics team is probably one of the top five championship teams in the history of basketball in terms of overall team and how good they were and how dominant they were. They went, I believe, 40-1 and at home in the regular season. And the 30-win Chicago Bulls took them to overtime in the playoffs because Jordan was able to put up 63. And you just see his acrobatics, the way he is able to control his body in midair, and those are modern-day highlights. Those are still moves that most players in today's NBA can't do and that's one of the things honestly through four episodes of an era of basketball and about a player in particular that I I really do know a lot about that really stuck out to me Um, I'm really glad that you're watching it we have a friend who we've talked about in previous episodes way back in the day our buddy Ian who actually writes for a basketball website SB Nation we were I was texting with him Um, about my excitement about this documentary series starting and i said how pumped are you for the last dance because he was also a big jordan fan as a kid and he said i'm excited but i don't know how excited i am because what can they show me that i haven't already seen and i said you fucking egotistical asshole (laughs) (laughs) so you've seen all that footage of phil jackson playing basketball in high school really that's not new. Yeah. That's not new to you, you punk.
0: So and Dennis Rodman going to Vegas.
1: There's so mu- well, I, I remember that when it happened. That was that was a huge story when it happened. Um, anyway, so we're we're almost at the halfway point, and it is the greatest thing to happen to me during the coronavirus. I don't I don't <laughs> know I don't know what else to say. I so a little uh, just a brief brief. I'll try to make it super brief history of my love of basketball. It is because of Michael Jordan. I'm not alone there. I'm not new in that assessment. I was born...
0: You you saw Space Jam, and it was in love from there.
1: Several times. Um, no, man, my, my love of Jordan predated Space Jam, for sure. Of course, of course. Um, I was uh, born in 85, so when they won their first title in 1991, I was about to turn six years old. And at that point... I wasn't, at least as far as I remember, because I was five years old. I don't remember that championship. But the next year, when I was six, the 91-92 season, they beat the Portland Trailblazers to go back to back. And I remember that season as when I really first started paying attention to basketball. And I was only six years old. So he was in, you know, he was the, the best player on the best team. So I was naturally drawn to him. And I remember that's when I started to learn about the Celtics a little bit. Reggie Lewis, like Larry Bird retired that year and Reggie Lewis was kind of their next big star. So um, Reggie Lewis was a player that I knew about, but I was all about Jordan all the time. I got his basketball. I got his jersey. My dad took me to go see him play the Celtics at the Boston Garden. There were these VHS tapes um, that ended up coming out every year they won a title, which was like a championship recap VHS. And I ended up buying the, or not me, my parents obviously bought me the uh, Portland Trailblazers one and the Lakers one from the season before, which we've already seen in the documentary, their first championship against the Lakers. And I grew up in a room with my two brothers, and I remember me and my younger brother Cliff would just put those VHSs on and watch them over and over and over. In particular, that Portland Trailblazers second championship VHS I probably watched that as a kid 750 times probably more Um, they end up winning in 93 and then he retires and I remember my dad telling me that and I was so excited because we were supposed to go see them I was supposed to get tickets to see them again that was like my one uh, wish every year for Christmas it was like can you take me to go see the Bulls play my dad told me he had retired and I just broke down crying I was like so fucking devastated. It felt to like, go play
0: baseball. Yes.
1: It, well, I didn't even like really understand. I'm like, why? Well, oh, it didn't even matter. I was just like, oh, the the world is dead. Like that's like it was like <laughs> just such pure despair. I I felt, and it was during that break that I really became a Celtics fan. Yeah. Um, and then he came back, and I was just right back in with the Bulls, and kind of like both teams at that point. But I was still all about Michael Jordan, and I vividly remember. You know, by the time of the second beat, I was basically in middle school. Um, so when this season takes place, ninety seven, ninety eight, I turned 12 before the start of the season, uh, about to turn 13. And I just remember watching, you know, this was back in the day where you didn't have NBA League Pass. I couldn't watch every Bulls game. But they were basically on TNT or on ABC, or I think it was NBC at the time. Um pretty much like once a week, maybe twice a week, and I just remember watching every single minute of any Bulls game that I could and just watching Jordan. He was like the only player as a kid before I became a a real basketball nerd that I remember I would watch. I would not watch the ball. I would watch him, you know? Yeah. Just to see what he was doing all the time. I was was just so, so obsessed with Michael Jordan.
0: Well, he is, I think, obviously – the probably, uh, of course, there's arguments, but I think the documentary is definitely of the position that he's the greatest of all time at playing the game. But I think what I like and I'm appreciating so much about the show is that it is working very hard to explain just how amazing he is and giving context to it and sort of like making sure that you understand how he came about and was different for the league at the time, how he played differently, what his attitude was. Um, but and so I appreciate the that the show is giving that context and being like, no, we want you to understand just how good he is and how different he was at the time. But I also appreciate the show is smart enough to be suspicious of him as a person. Um, and the show while kind of praising his talents is obviously walking this line of like, it's clearly an, um, he's an amazing athlete, but it's also very clear that what it cost him in pursuit of that is, um, you know, he's he's not easy to be around. Most of his victories come out of this spite or this uh, aggression or this kind of like feeling that he's been wronged and yeah. uh, needs vengeance of some sort. And it kind of makes clear that while he loves the game, his drive to win at all costs is really what drove the, and that uh, he's still bitter about so much. And the show kind of is willing to, go into that and show you like you can see his eye rolls when they bring up the migraine game you know uh, you can just see that that still probably fucking annoys him that Scotty got that migraine Um, and you see that he maybe almost doesn't believe that he got he's like well what are you gonna do you know yeah he said so Phil's
1: Phil's referencing a game Um, you know one of the things that the show is doing really well you know it's following the 97-98 season which for those who don't know is the last year that the legendary Bulls group the core group of Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen and Phil Jackson were together. And this is the second of two three peets they won from 91 92 and 93. Jordan was gone for 2 years, came back and they won 96 97 and 98. And Phil, Scottie and Michael were there for all six. Um, as were, you know, the general manager, Jerry Krause, who's basically the villain of the Yeah, I was going to say, series.
0: Jerry is definitely the villain yes. of the show. And
1: uh, the the hilarious owner, Jerry Reinsdorf, uh, is there. And obviously, since they're focusing, their their main core, the anchor of the show is that particular season, that final season. The cast of characters that we're meeting as well are guys like Dennis Rodman, who was only around for the, the final three titles, not the first three and Steve Kerr, who's now the coach of the Warriors. So we're meeting all of these characters. And um, what Phil's referring to with the migraine game, so it it uses that season as an anchor, and then it's kind of working its way from the beginning and tracking the players' progressions, focusing, spending a lot of time on each uh, player and coach. Yeah, like
0: episode two is very much the Scotty yes, Pippen, they, they, whereas episode three is Rodman.
1: But, the, yeah. but they're really following jordan so episode one is pretty much all about michael and starting with his college days and him getting drafted and going to the bulls season episode two spends a lot of time especially early on showing scotty pippen's origins and then getting drafted by the bulls episode three is a lot about dennis rodman in the beginning episode four is a lot about phil jackson the coach in the beginning but as they're doing this and as they're focusing on the 97 98 season they're slowly working through jordan's career So you see him uh, as a rookie in 84, you see him get injured in 85, 86, and then that amazing Celtics game, and then Scottie Pippen comes on the scene, and in 88 is when they start to contend. And Jordan, at this point, he's the highest scoring player in the league, he's the biggest attraction in the league, it's still Bird and Magic's league, but Jordan is clearly the guy on his way. Like, he's about to be the king, but he's not yet and everyone kind of assumed at that time that it was just a matter of Pippen or I'm sorry uh, magic and Larry Bird are about to age out and then Jordan will take over but it didn't work that way this rough tumble team from Detroit with Isaiah Thomas and Bill Laimbeer and Dennis Rodman who later be- joins the Bulls uh they become this very physical violent team they try to fight and bully their way to the top of the league and basically push out like the, the poetic ballet brilliance of guys like Larry Bird and magic Johnson. And it works. They win two titles when it should have been by all accounts, Jordan's time to ascend. So he had to get through these guys first and it's a great challenge for him. And what the show is doing really well, which you touched on is showing the obstacles Jordan had to face through each point of his career as a basketball player and how he was able to improve his game to overcome all of those. But not only improve, but what he had to sacrifice, whether it's camaraderie with his teammates or friendships throughout the league or whatever it was. Um, So in 89-90, the Bulls, for the second year in a row, play the Detroit Pistons in the Eastern Conference Finals. They get to seven games, and suddenly in Game 7, his number two guy, Scottie Pippen, has a migraine and he just has a horrible game. They get blown out and they talk, the The filmmakers talk to Jordan about it and they're like, so that's the migraine game, huh? And he's kind of like, yep. And his response is basically like, he told me yeah. I had a migraine. What am I supposed to do? Like, you can tell he doesn't believe it. You can just tell he doesn't believe it, but Scott, yeah, Scotty's kind boy of boy like... and he can't say it, but you know, he wants to like, you know, yeah. he's won six titles with this guy. It has been 30 years since the migraine game and he can't laugh about it like he cannot let it go
0: and here all right so here are some of my favorite here are some of my main takeaways and you as a sports fan probably have had these opinions for a long time uh but these were my takeaways after refreshing my my memories and relearning some of this or and hearing some of it for the first time number one um i think pippen is definitely wrong in the way he acts in reaction to the contract stuff in terms of sitting out the surgery, all that stuff. Um, But Michael should have helped him. Uh, I think, you know, like Michael could have done more to get him uh, money deals. He could have the way he pressed to keep uh, Phil as the coach, he could have done the same thing to the, to them to, you know, keep Scotty and say like, you know, this is Scotty's, is just as important to me as the coaches and blah, blah, blah. Okay. As,
1: as you go through this list by list, can we talk about each one individually?
0: I don't want. Well, I'm scared to like go. I don't want to have to explain every single one of them and us spend an hour just summarizing the show. That's my only fear. Okay, um, well, uh, the- people, 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 go watch the show. I think we both are big fans. Um, but yeah, yeah. Well, let me, let me just say, like that is. I, I feel like Pippin should have done a, a good amount there, and also the Isaiah Thomas stuff cracks me up because Isaiah Thomas is also so clearly wrong about his opinion. But um, anyway, you, tell me what you think of Scotty because I I walked away. I don't think Scotty Pippen comes off very good in this. I'm a
1: big Scottie Pippen fan, and I have a lot of sympathy for him. He made mistakes in his career. Um, they're probably going to get to one big one that happens before the 98 season that I won't spoil for you if you don't remember. But in terms of the contract stuff, Pippen was arguably –
0: the second most important player of the NBA and the 122nd highest paid.
1: Yeah. I mean, not only the second best player on the Bulls, he was maybe the second best player in the league for part of that uh, run the Bulls had. I mean, he was definitely yeah. top five. And he signed a deal super early. Um, the, the the documentary does a great job of showing he was one of like 12 kids growing up in this poor family in the South. His dad and one of his brothers were paralyzed and or had to be in a wheelchair And he signed this contract early on that basically guaranteed him two two to three million dollars a year for his entire prime, pretty much. So he missed out on, I mean, tens of millions of dollars in terms of NBA value, because when he signed the contract was basically the season before they won their first title and Michael Jordan turned the NBA into a global phenomenon and it was the year before the dream team, which I think they're gonna talk about in the next episode. So it was a combination of timing and just signing a deal that was way too long. It's just
0: it was like seven it was, years.
1: It was a seven year eighteen million dollar deal. And it was a mistake, but he signed that contract. And what's really interesting, I wanna talk about this contract in particular. Um, so they interviewed Scotty about it. They interview they talk to everybody about the Pippen contract, and he becomes a disgruntled player. Um The owner basically, hes according to Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner, he said, I told Scotty at the time, you're undervaluing yourself. Don't sign this contract. Scotty signs it. And at that point, Reinsdorf says, you signed the contract. Don't come back to me and want to renegotiate. You know, you made your bed. You're going to sleep in it. So 97-98, it's the last year of his contract. He's about to become a free agent next year. The Bulls have publicly stated Phil Jackson is coming back for this last season. Then He's done. MJ has publicly stated, I'm not going to play here for any other coach besides Phil. So there's a lot of talk that this is the last. I mean, it almost broke up the the summer before this season, which they document. But it's basically, by all accounts, this, and I remember this at the time, we all kind of knew that the 98 season was going to be it for the Jordan Bulls. Like, it, it was just going to stop. At this moment, well,
0: they they announced it.
1: Yes, it's and it's crazy, but like we knew that, we knew that at the time, which was so weird because they had just won two titles, including a seventy-two win season and a sixty-nine win season. They were. I mean, they were the greatest team ever, not just the defending champs. Yeah. They were the best team ever, and, the, and it was about to end. So,
0: And the last dance is literally what the coach calls the season. He kind of gives the each season a theme, and that's what he uses for the players yes. throughout the last season to kind of motivate them. This is our last dance together. guys.
1: And I, and I want to talk about Phil Jackson, their coach, um, and this will kind of springboard us into that a little bit, and then we can talk about Isaiah Thomas because that's kind of where the doc has left off. So I think that could be a good closing topic. But – so Scottie Pippen, he's very disgruntled with his contract. He wants to renegotiate. It. He knows he's not going to. And he basically, he, he's done with the Bulls. He's fed up. He gets hurt in the 97 playoffs. And instead of having surgery, excuse me, I just burped. Uh, instead of having surgery right away, he waits until the start of the season and then has surgery, which requires him to basically miss the first half of the regular season. And it's clearly a fuck you move. He even admits it uh, while being interviewed. He said, they're not going to ruin my summer by having to rehab from this injury. I'm going to wait and then do it right when the season starts because fuck them. Jerry Krause is trying to trade him. Scottie Pippen requests to trade publicly and then renegs on it and comes back when he's healthy in January. Now, this whole time, Jordan, he clearly is frustrated by it. He doesn't go out and publicly say, like, fuck Scottie Pippen. He wants Scottie Pippen. And I don't know if they're going to talk about it at this point because they've already kind of addressed that Pippen comes back to the team. So but did, He
0: calls him selfish. He says uh, Scotty was being selfish. Yes, you know, but
1: like, an, another thing that happened that they haven't mentioned, and I'm kind of surprised, maybe I got the timeline wrong, but Jordan vetoes the trade. that They had a deal in place. You know, Kraus talks about You know, we had some offers that we were looking at and they decided not to trade him. Jordan vetoed it. He said you better not trade Scotty Pippen. Like, don't don't you fucking do it. I need him, even though he was hurt and he was upset at him. So I thought that was interesting. But the most interesting thing about it, I agree Scotty was selfish. He didn't handle it well, but I understand his frustration with Jerry Krause. What fascinates me about that is how Phil Jackson handled it. They talked to Phil Jackson yeah. about it and said, were you mad at Scotty? And he said, no, I wasn't. And that, I was like, floored. I'm like, what? How can you not be mad? This is such a selfish mood, move. He's like, I knew Scotty was mad, and I knew he had to take some control of the situation, basically. And this was his way to do it. And I figured we can kind of manage the ship while Scotty's gone in the beginning of the season and kind of maintain a level of success that we need to be at until he gets back. And then when he's back, we have to be all in with him. We just have to be like, okay, Scotty's on the team now, we're all in with Scotty. Don't hold any grudges. He's a part of the team. This is the team that has won all of these years. We can do it again. He he just knew, like, th- this was the hand I'm dealt, and I'm not going to hold any grudges about it. And I thought that, yeah. that was such an important—like, the fact that Phil Jackson, the leader of the team in the locker room, was able to manage Scotty's— ego and his decisions there in a way that didn't affect the other players I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was just a brilliant way he handled that whole situation.
0: Well, they showed a few times that Phil Jackson basically outside of having to have incredible skills as a basketball coach and knowledgeable about the sport, his real talents also lied in managing these personalities and these different egos and their different requirements and needs. And, uh, when they're being selfish and petty, because he has to do that with Scotty the same way he has to deal with Dennis Rodman's bullshit and kind of the, it, they, they, go out of their way to say like, no, I wasn't mad at Dennis. I understood Dennis and I was sympathetic and I would let him go to Vegas to party midway through the fucking playoffs or whatever, just to, I knew that's what he needed and he'd be good when he got back. And most coaches obviously aren't going to deal with that. And, and that's an amazing kind of ability on his part to understand the greater need and to have confidence and, the team. And I I think that's also, they get into the triangle and teaching Jordan to like rely on other people and not just like think he has to carry it all the time. And I I think Phil Jackson really, as much as Jerry Krause probably comes off as the bad guy, Phil Jackson really looks pretty great throughout this.
1: Phil Jackson is great. And you mentioned the Dennis Rodman thing. So very quickly uh, at this point, Dennis Rodman has been on the team for two and a half seasons. Now he's won two titles with the bulls. And while Scotty's hurt, Dennis Rodman kind of slides into the second banana roll. And you can tell he's loving it. Like, while Scotty's out, the Bulls are struggling a lot early. Then Rodman kind of gets it going. And they reel off, like, 10 wins in 12 games early in the season. They're having a really good time. They're climbing the standings. Rodman is enjoying being the Robin to MJ's Batman. And then Scotty comes back from injury. And Dennis Rodman has a meltdown and he, he says, he talks to Jordan and Phil Jackson and says, I need to have a vacation. It's the middle of the season. And he says, I need to go to Vegas and just party my fucking tits off with Carmen Electra. And Phil Jackson and Jordan let him do it because they know, like, if we don't, it's just going to get worse. This guy's insane. Yeah. So they let him go. He's They, they give him 48 hours. He takes about six days. Um, so basically half a week um, with an unauthorized leave of absence from the team. But then he comes back and Phil Jackson as the leader just decides to take the approach of like, okay, he did what he had to do. We all know Dennis is Dennis. And then Dennis kicks ass again. And it's fine. Like that is such a distraction that could unravel so many teams and just linger and linger and linger. And Phil just, nips it in the bud. Like he just takes the approach of we're gonna allow this and we're gonna move on because it's all about the team success moving forward. Phil was always so good at that. You mentioned that he calls the season the last dance. He has a little booklet that he talks about. There's this book that was like my Bible as a middle schooler. It came out um between the two three peats, I believe. So like 95 maybe 96. I don't remember. I'd have to look it up. But it's a book Phil Jackson wrote called Sacred Hoops and it's okay it's all he he's written some great books they talk about one um in the last episode that he co-wrote which talks about like his journeys taking acid and mindfulness and basically just him being a hippie living in montana he wrote this book in the mid-90s called sacred hoops uh which is it's basically a philosophy book and it's all about the idea of You know, basketball is this beautiful game, but also stories of his time coaching, stories about the Bulls, which is why I bought it initially. But it becomes this kind of philosophical treatise on mindfulness and leadership. And it's a really fascinating book. I would love to read it again because I haven't read it since I was like 12. But I remember it had a huge impact on me and kind of rewired my brain a little bit. And that is kind of the mentality that eventually led me a few years later into being kind of like a high school hippie and a fish fan and getting really into the grateful dead and stuff like that. And then experimenting with acid myself, like all of this stuff, it kind of started with Phil Jackson in a, in a weird way. And, and I think in a way that I didn't totally understand at the time. Um, yeah. But just as, as a, as such a fan of the bulls, And then after reading that book from Phil and becoming just a really big Phil Jackson fan and like always trying to look up interviews from him or listen to what people said about him, he became this weird like role model in my life from a distance as a guy who I always just look to of like, how does he handle certain things? You know, there were stories about at the beginning of every season, besides naming the season like he did for The Last Dance for this final season. Um, there are a lot of stories about like every year uh, each player would get a book. He would give them a book and it wasn't always the same book for every player on the team. Every, like it wasn't like, okay, this year you're gonna get cat's cradle and then next year everyone's gonna get the Hound of the Baskervilles or something. It was like he would he would pull each player aside and give them a different book. And sometimes it was a novel. Sometimes it was a biography. Sometimes it was a book of philosophy, but just something that he thought that player needed or wanted to focus on just to like put them in, in a proper headspace going into the season. And Steve Kerr has talked about that. Who's now a brilliant coach. Who's won three championships with the warriors in the past five years as a head coach. Um, who's also in the documentary because he was on that 98 team as a sharpshooter. And
0: I was going to correct you. I was going to be like, his name's Steph Curry, man. Uh,
1: no, it's not. It is Steve Curry. <laughs>
0: um,
1: but uh, yeah, he he would always just do stuff like that. And the idea of uh, getting these athletes to read books as pre- pre- preparation um, was always fascinating to me. As a guy, you know, as like the stereotype of athletes are a bunch of jocks or whatever. So Phil would always have this. He, he brought these two worlds together that I'm really fascinated by and a fan of, like the sports world and the world of philosophy and kind of like intellectual um, exploration, I guess, and like using drug use and psychedelics and like conscious expansion in these really fascinating ways. He's just such an interesting character and I love that he's coming off so well in this documentary as opposed to isaiah thomas which you mentioned briefly earlier you want to set that up a little bit
0: well all right earlier this week i watched la confidential um i just kind of threw it on it was uh one of those titles i think i'd always been meaning to show to shell and so we watched la confidential and the reason i bring that up is do you remember the scene where uh guy pierce is interrogating the guys the um the group of guys that get rounded up into the interrogation room and he's pushing the buttons. And so they can hear each guy can hear the other interrogation and hear their friends like ratting each other out. Um, anyway, yeah. I thought of that scene. I thought of that scene because, uh, I loved that the director multiple times throughout the documentary, like pulls out a phone or an iPad and like hands it to Michael Jordan or whatever. And he's like, here's what Isaiah Thomas had to say about this. Or here's what so yes, had to those, say those parts this. are great. And, And I just loved, I was like, oh my God, this is some gossipy bullshit and I'm here for it. And like, I just love watching the director kind of fuck with them. And so basically Isaiah Thomas is part of uh, the Detroit Pistons and one of the great kind of humps that Jordan has to get over is defeating them. And as you said, they were a very physical team, very um, big bullies and Jordan like had to physically get bigger and bulk up muscles and kind of everything to kind of stand up to them. And it was one of the big humps that he had to get over. So when he finally gets over this hump, This team, after defeating them in the national championship, they walk off without even giving a handshake. Sorry,
1: they're in the same conference. So it was the the Bulls lost to them twice in the Eastern Conference Finals, back-to-back years. And then the third year is when, in 91, the Bulls end up sweeping Detroit.
0: Okay, so it's just the Conference Finals. And uh, basically, so they leave, and uh, and it just becomes this bit of bad sportsman. uh, Just one of the worst signs of just like, after you beat them last year, you know, it's just such shitty, petty behavior. And Isaiah Thomas kind of defends it. Oh, wait, did you, I'm sorry. Did you say what he, what they did? They all walk off with 10 seconds. They all walked off. Yeah. There's 10 seconds left. They don't even stop to congratulate them to do the cordial thing. Like, Hey, good job. Good game. Do none of this. They just walk off and it's their home field too. Like it's, they're in Detroit. And so they just leave and kind of leave jordan and the bulls out there stranded which i don't you know obviously they're in a great mood they didn't really care but they felt deeply disrespected and especially considering this was such a big deal for jordan obviously he's never let go of this grudge and watching when isaiah thomas gets brought up you can just see instantly the hatred in jordan he's like i don't give a fuck what isaiah thomas has to say it's bullshit he's a liar fuck isaiah thomas like i just it cracked me up and when the director's like oh, let me show you what he said he's like i don't care I don't give a fuck what he said.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the director of the documentary or whoever's interviewing Jordan at one point says, you know, you were clearly offended that they walked off and wouldn't shake your hand. Um, what do you think now? And he's like, I'm still offended. <laughs> like He still holds it. He still holds the grudge. And the thing that's so funny, because fuck Isaiah Thomas and that Pistons team, they, they sucked. But um, Isaiah you know he basically says if we knew the reaction we were going to get we obviously would have shook their hands but like <laughs> go go back and watch the tape that's what everyone did and then they show Jordan the two seasons prior losing to that Pistons team and shaking their hands on the court and they even show a clip right before this of Jordan after the second loss to the Pistons and he's devastated this like i said earlier this is supposed to be that 1990 season that's supposed to be the year Jordan ascends. That's supposed to be the year he beats Detroit. And he can't do it. That's the that's the migraine game. And he's being interviewed in the locker room after the game. And he says, what can you do? They were a better team. We're going to try to come back stronger next year. He's on the court after the game, shaking hands with them, congratulating them, being a good sport. And this is like the the most competitive asshole in NBA history. This is a guy who takes losing harder than anybody in the history of the NBA, like he hates losing a thousand times more than he likes winning. So for right, for, yeah. for Isaiah Thomas to say that when Jordan, the guy who just beat you, was a model example of sportsmanship against every instinct he probably had the previous two years. Like, fuck off, man, you suck. I like the way Horace Grant said it best. They a bunch of bitches. <laughs>
0: Oh Yeah, there's some great stuff. All right, let me run down a a few brief like hot spots just to like shout them out there. Little details that have cracked me up along the way. Number one, uh, Obama being called former Chicago resident as opposed to (laughs) (laughs) ex-president. Yes. Uh, Yeah, Barack Obama is interviewed and in his lower third is referred to as former Chicago resident as opposed to ex-president of the United States or whatever else you want to call Mm -hmm. him. Uh, Which cracked me up. I love that Jordan throughout every interview... Has liquor and a cigar next to him Everything. on like the fucking yes. table. Yes, yes, yes. It cracks me. I'm just like, God, how how many sips is he into? You know, at this point in the interview, you want to know, and that stuff has cracked me up. And just the other thing, I I did want to take away, but I leave every episode just like obviously I don't play basketball, but I just like want to go fucking work really hard at something. You know, like it's it is kind of inspiring. It is. You know, to yeah. like. Like, as big as you walk away, like, yeah, he's such a grudge-holding dick. Like, I don't want to be like that. It seems to have, like, ruined a, por- a portion of his soul that he doesn't seem to have. Like, when he cries when they- when they win the national championship, you hear all the other players being like, I didn't know he had emotions up until that moment. Yeah. Like I, I thought I his only see- emotion was anger. Yeah, or resentment. And, I- and that's still most of what he has. I guess, you know, he has become more emotional, and the Jordan crying memes have become more common. But, you know... That's you can still see that old competitive self. Well,
1: did you see you know uh, during Kobe's memorial? Did you watch the speech Jordan gave?
0: Yeah, where he's crying and is like, "I know everyone's just gonna re-me crying again." Yeah,
1: which got a huge laugh. But the whole speech is really great. If you if people out there haven't watched it, it's available. Like just his his speech uh, at the Kobe memorial is available to watch on YouTube. It's like ten or twelve minutes long, but it's super emotional and heartfelt. And even to this day, I mean, this just happened a month and a half ago or something, and people are people watch that in real time and were like, "I didn't even know he was that close to Kobe." I mean, he's so he's so guarded with his personal life that you know when he does show emotion like that, it's just extra moving and kind of shocking, and it really makes you pay attention because he's just not known for that. Like he definitely he definitely sacrificed a part of his soul maybe to, to be dramatic about it, but definitely like a lot of personal relationships to be who he is, but he absolutely gained immortality as a player and just as a legend of the game and you see all of the work that he had to do like he wasn't just given this ability to make him the greatest player in the world. like he had to work his ass off. he's just the the combination of you know whatever people want to say about his personality, no one in this documentary is arguing that he was not the hardest worker they ever met that he cared more than anybody else he was the perfect combination of like the most talented player in the world the person with the, the biggest drive in the world the person who was willing to work the hardest in the world just he he had everything that you want it was just the perfect blend of what you would need to be the greatest possible person at your given profession you know like there's just nobody better at every aspect of the game than what jordan was you know he's only one of four players to win mvp and defensive player of the year and he's the only guard to do it it's all big men and then it's michael jordan like he's just he's just a a level above everybody else and it's it's really fascinating to watch
0: yeah, we're gonna ke- we're gonna keep watching. Um, there's six more episodes left to air, so there's still plenty to go. We can probably touch back on it maybe when it's finished airing. We can maybe do a, like a wrap up. Yeah, definitely talking about the whole thing for sure. Um, one thing I did here, I don't know if you heard this. Uh, apparently, ESPN also has the way they filmed this entire last season. Apparently, they did the same thing with Kobe. So uh, they have extensive behind the scenes of all of Kobe's last season with the Lakers. So it looks wow. like maybe down the road, uh, looks like down the road we might be getting one of these about Kobe from ESPN as well. Well,
1: I know I know Kobe's coming up in one of the next couple of episodes as a talking head, so that'll be emotional because I, I saw someone post like a like a this episode is dedicated to Kobe thing, and a picture of him like in in an interview chair. Do you know? Speaking of uh, real quick of Isaiah Thomas, I won't even spoil. it. But he, he comes up uh, very oh, soon in no, the next uh, episode.
0: I'm very excited to keep watching. Um,
1: so. can I, I just want to uh, mention two of my favorite quotes from the doc so Do far. Uh, we don't have to discuss too much, but just one off. So, um, and then I can mention something if you want to transition into the movie from there, unless you have more to say.
0: No, no, no. I'm good. I was okay. ready to transition into movies. Okay, so. cool.
1: So real quick... Um, Jordan's arguing with uh, Phil Jackson at one point about um, needing to trust his teammates more. And Jordan says, Phil says to him, you got to remember that there's no I in team. And Jordan responds, yeah, but there's an I and win. I and win. <laughs> That's yeah. the best quote. <laughs> and then just this random one-off. Uh, the coach before Phil Jackson came on the scene in 89 was Doug Collins, who was this really young, sweaty guy. But he was really uh, – I think he was beneficial to Jordan's career. He really opened up his game and his uh, yeah. his stamina. Jordan loved him. Yeah, yeah he you put can tell Jordan
0: he, more front forward.
1: Exactly. You can tell he loved him, and then he had to learn from Phil Jackson to be a less uh, ball-dominant player. But um, there's just this random moment where Phil Jackson gets hired, (laughs) Doug Collins is fired, and they cut to uh, sports reporters say, well, if you're getting ready for work right now, you're probably not Doug Collins. <laughs> I just thought that was like the meanest way to start a new story. If you're getting ready for work right now, you're probably not Doug Collins. And that's how we introduce Collins being fired on a new segment. That really cracked me up. Um, but speaking... Great writing. Speaking, just great writing. speaking of Phil Jackson and uh, his struggles, um, there's this great moment at the end of episode four, the most recent episode, which ends with them winning their first title. And... Um, so they're playing the Lakers, they finally beat the Pistons, they're up three games to one in the NBA Finals over Magic Johnson and the Lakers, looks like they're about to win, they're in Chicago for game five, but it's a back and forth game, they go to the fourth quarter, tied, and, um... You know, everyone assumes like, okay, this is Jordan's time to take over. He's going to just shine and dominate. And Phil Jackson, they've implemented what you touched on briefly, the triangle offense, which I'm sure they're going to talk more and more about, which is just a way of constant movement off ball. Players are moving in formations kind of together, but it looks random, but it's really not to just create great passing lanes to just keep the ball and players constantly moving. So defenders have to switch and eventually you're going to find an open player on the court to get a wide open shot. That's the point of the triangle offense is somebody will get open. So it's not hero ball dominant, which is what Jordan was so good at so early in his career, right? So it's game five, of the NBA finals. And um, Jordan is kind of forcing the action a little bit. And Phil Jackson's in the huddle and says, Mike, when we run this play, what happens? And he says, Paxson is open in the corner. So Phil says, Give the fucking ball to John Paxson. He's open. Let him take the shot. And Jordan had to learn to trust his teammates that if he fed you the ball and you were wide open, you'll hit that shot. And what happens in that fourth quarter? John Paxson goes off. He hits several shots in that fourth. They end up winning, going away. Jordan finally has his championship, right? And it was because he learned to trust his teammates thanks to Phil Jackson. That gets us into the movie we watch. I don't know how you have how are you liking coaching so far? Great. Just getting used to the players. More players. I was never sure
0: how much of you I could let in. I heard you're coaching basketball.
1: Yeah. Keeps me busy. Keeps my mind off other things, you know.
0: settle I spent a lot
1: of time hurting myself.
0: I made a lot of bad decisions.
1: I had a lot of regrets. On the line, i want you taking that shot why is that so hard for you to believe what if you're the best player on the team yeah, there you go. i know you're suffering i just want you to be happy again but you gotta want it too
0: keep pressing trapping taking charges hey. you
1: guys earn this tonight the way back starring Ben Affleck about an alcoholic, former high school basketball phenom who agrees to coach his alma mater. Who is this, the, they're this rundown Catholic boy school with a shitty basketball program. The current coach, he has like a stroke or something, right? And he's unable to continue coaching and Phil, um, Phil, uh, Ben Affleck, who's kind of this unemployed burnout dude peaked in high school type of guy is recruited by the father of the catholic school who runs the athletic department or something like that and starts coaching this basketball team phil let's talk about it what'd you think about the way back
0: uh the way back was the as i told you a couple times when i think it's permanently going to be in my mind the last movie i saw in theaters before coronavirus hit uh it was and it was the
1: first uh new release that i rented since the coronavirus oh yeah and speaking so, yeah. speaking of trolls world tour
0: oh yes this was probably a better choice for you um i went to the movie because uh, i have the amc pass so I, you know like you i was just gonna go see any movie like at random ever so i was just like yeah i'm gonna go see anything that comes out but i also i'm always kind of rooting for ben affleck even though he like has been in more shitty movies than good movies probably at this point but like when he's good he's good and you're like always kind of rooting for him in a weird way i don't know why i mean that's a whole other conversation but like i was kind of like hey i like a good sports drama it's been a while since we've had a good one of these the guy who made this made warrior which i think is one of the better kind of like i've called them crybaby man movies you know like they're male weepers that are i think about strong men you know in getting in touch with their emotions through sports or physical, you know, punching and shit. So you have like Warrior, which I thought was a very good example of that. And so that kind of got me ready for for this. And I went to see it and I thought, yeah, this is exactly what I wanted. It's solid. It's good. It's not the kind of movie that's gonna, you know, change the way you think about life. But because, you know, it's basically abiding by many of the Beats you probably know from sports films, but within that comfort, it finds a great little character drama, a really great lead performance from Ben Affleck. That's obviously very personal to him and very emotional. And uh, there's some very hard to watch scenes in this movie that felt like you're like, damn, Ben, like, don't don't show that much. But, you know, and then I, I I liked it. It was one of those movies that I walked out just being like, man, that movie would have played every day on TNT, they would have showed it in classes or something like that in high school. It's just one of those movies that feels like I would recommend it to your uncle, your grandpa, like men will like this movie yeah, and women, women will too. But if there's just something kind of like, very masculine and boyish and kind of just like comforting about it. Like I said, I don't think it's groundbreaking or great or amazing, but I think a lot of people will really like it and get a lot from it, especially the performances and it still get the satisfaction of like a sports movie.
1: Yeah. It's like a warrior, you know, beyond being the, having the same director. It's a great uh, analog to this because it'll be a movie like that, that I think a ton of people will slowly end up seeing and it'll end up doing really well financially. Because it will slowly build an audience of people who like it. I think you say it could have been a movie. I think it will be a movie that plays on cable and basic cable in the years to come. You know, if they're still doing that. Like, I mean, TNT still plays movies like that. I think this will totally be one. It It is really... Um, it sits comfortably in two standard types of films. The sports drama and the white savior movie. But it is... It's more than that, and it, and it subverts both of those uh, types of stories, I think, in really interesting ways. Um, right, yeah. In turn, the, the thing I want to talk about the most is probably the white savior concept, complex, that this movie, I think, has but transcends. I, talked, I watched this movie with uh, my writing partner, Sarah, who's a Latino woman, and she enjoyed the movie overall. Overall, she liked it. Um, she also roots for Ben Affleck a lot, like I do, too. Um, she did think it was a, it was a little, uh, maybe white savory on the surface. And, um, for those who don't know the plot, you know, like I said, it's Ben Affleck, obviously he's a white guy. He goes to the school, which is, it seems like it is, um, primarily like maybe inner city poor neighborhood. Um, so the. The basketball team is made up of mostly like black and Latino kids. There are one or two white kids, especially this like cocky guy who um, is kind of like the comic relief on the team.
0: It, it's the sports team for the school in Sister Act Two, back in the habit, I think.
1: Exactly. That's exactly what I thought. Um,
0: yeah.
1: But I think where it transcends the, the white savior trope, which is normally a negative thing. Ben Affleck is not some rich guy who's going into a community that he is "quote unquote" above, right? That he goes to save. He doesn't do that. It's also his alma mater. Like he is, he is a part of that community. He is not going into the community to save it. And I think that's the biggest problem with the like the dangerous mind, blindside type stories, right? Is that yeah, I'm
0: going to come in and clean this up. Yes,
1: like I, I will show you the ways of the upper-middle-class white life, which is better than yours. Like, that's normally what a white Whitesaver movie is. And by
0: giving you Bob Dylan to read in poetry class. <laughs>
1: exactly. And this is, this is something that uh, The Way Back, thankfully, does not do, which uh, Sarah and I talked about a lot. Like, on the surface, it looks like it could be one of those movies, but it's really not, because this guy is equally down in the dumps, and he has tons of his own demons that he has to work out. And normally you know the the white savior movie is like i i came to save you but you saved me as well like there's a lot of that and there there's yeah, there's yeah. there's some of that in this movie but there also isn't like it takes some twists and turns that maybe you don't expect and in terms of a sports drama normally we i'll try to be vague but a slight spoiler warning if you plan on watching this movie um you know normally every sports movie ends with they're a terrible team. He makes them great. And then maybe there's some setback. And then at the end, they fully realize their potential and become great again. And this movie, we don't even see what happens in the final game. Like, it's not even about the, the end result of their game. The, the movie cuts to black before tip-off even happens in their playoff game, which I really liked.
0: You know, and there's still, like, it's not the end of the movie. There's still, like, a good amount of story left to go. It's not the heart of the movie is not whether they win that game or
1: not. Yeah, winning or losing that game is not the point of the movie, which I found really fascinating. So, overall, I really liked this movie. I was very pleasantly surprised by it. But to tie it into the segue I had about um, Michael Jordan needing to learn to trust his teammates and dishing the ball to John Paxson to win that first NBA title... Yeah, I have one major problem with this film. Sure. Ben Affleck's the coach. He was the star, like best player in the state as a high schooler.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: He, uh, he kind of uh, forms a real bond with this one player, this one kid on the team who's clearly the most talented guy, but he's super soft-spoken. He's not the captain, even though he's the best player, and he's not a leader, and Ben Affleck sees the potential of this kid, sees that he could probably get a college scholarship to play ball somewhere and like have a real real education. Maybe not go pro as a player, but at least give himself a college degree and have make use basketball to make a better life for himself, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, get out of this lower income community and
1: So he's really pushing this kid yeah. to be more vocal, be a leader, really just improve his all-around game. And um, there's one point where uh, you know, that at first they're a really terrible team. Then they start winning games and things are moving. Things are moving. They get to a game against a really good team. They're in like a last second situation. Coach calls a timeout. Ben Affleck draws up a play for the star kid who's slowly learning how to become a leader. And it's it's exactly the same thing Phil Jackson does, right? Like you're going to make this move and what's probably going to happen is this kid's going to get open in the corner. If he's open, give it to him. He'll hit the shot. That's exactly what happens. He feeds them the ball, hits the shot, they win. Ben Affleck pulls the star kid aside and said, why didn't you take that shot? He said, well, because my teammate was open, I fed it to him. And and Ben Affleck says, sometimes making the right play isn't the right play. You're the star. Sometimes you just got to take that shot. And then at the end of the movie, a similar situation comes up where his teammate is wide open And instead of executing a perfect basketball play and getting a wide open (laughs) shot, this kid takes that three takes, does complete hero ball. He never passes the ball once he gets double teamed. He jacks up a three and hits it and they start celebrating and Ben Affleck's like, yep, that's exactly right. Like, what the fuck is that message? What is That, that message?
0: that there is an eye in win.
1: It is so oh my god, it's so frustrating and complete it's like the just this one weird anomaly in this movie that I don't understand and it has been bothering me since I've seen it because I'm trying <laughs> to figure out what the message is that's not about sports.
0: Right. I don't think it's about sport. I think that's just kind
1: of it can't I think it can't be about sports. So what what is he trying to say? Can you make sense of this idea for me? So the idea is sometimes when you're the leader, you 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 gotta step up, right? Like you gotta be the guy even when it's not even when it doesn't feel like the right thing to do. Right? I guess that's what they're saying.
0: I mean, maybe it's trying to have it both ways where it's like he's saying you do need to learn to rely on others around you, but sometimes it's up to you to like cross the finish line and you can't like you need to do it yourself so it's kind of maybe i don't know try to have it both ways i don't think that is the best i don't think the sports aspects of the movie are necessarily the best part of the movie i think it like i think that stuff kind of provides a nice structure and a nice kind of comfortable background to kind of put everything on especially like i think i described the movie as hoosiers as if dennis hopper was the coach instead of gene hackman and yeah. there were black kids instead of all white kids defeating all the black uh schools like they do in uh Hoosiers. <laughs> well that didn't take
1: <laughs> place in Larry Bird's hometown so you can't really blame those indiana but well, I, I i will but, say though uh, the way back the the basketball scenes are actually really good like they clearly got kids who know how to play ball
0: yeah they're well shot they too it. um, Yeah, it, it's a good movie i th- like it's one of those things like i would yeah like my uncles if they were like on thanksgiving being like what should, should i watch that i'd be like yeah you should definitely watch that but more
1: than you said you said uh, the the basketball stuff wasn't your favorite part of the movie what was your favorite part
0: i you know i'm a sucker i obviously most of them not most of the movie I, I i i should say that i enjoyed all the basketball stuff but the thing that i think i will carry from the movie is Ben affleck's performance that's probably the thing that i took away the most especially with him doing those interviews about rehab we've obviously watched the paparazzi have a field day with him over the years in terms of his weight fluctuation his tattoos his uh, being his divorce, going in and out of rehab at multiple times. So I think watching him really give a strong performance and he doesn't always give strong performances. So watching him give such a kind of low key, mature, wise in performance that was willing to show, I think a real naked side of him. That was really what I appreciated from the movie and took from it. I don't know that I really, not that I don't care, but the message of the basketball games, I, I that was kind of like, I was like, Oh, it's nice to have a basketball you know game that i i wasn't that wasn't the part that hooked me though necessarily i should say
1: right um so good movie for, I like for it. those yeah for those who don't know um, ben affleck like you said has has had issues with substance abuse i think particularly drinking which is the one of the the, the big flaw of this character and there's a lot of stuff about this his character's his life that's really heartbreaking and you come to yeah. learn throughout the course of the movie why he's in such a dark place But um, he he obviously, it seems like he brought a lot of his own personal demons into the role, which makes the movie, I think, even more effective and affecting. Do you know um, the story about him going to rehab in this movie and staying on? So this is what I heard. I forget where. Um, but it was from a, a source that I trusted when I either read it or heard it from somebody but I haven't fact-checked it myself so take this with a grain of salt but this is what I heard and I for, I, like I said, I forget from where so Ben Affleck had read the script and he was really excited about the project it, it, it obviously spoke to him in a very personal way and uh, then he they were about to start shooting and he went to rehab for uh, his alcohol dependence and the director Gavin O'Connor assumed that the project was dead, and he was maybe gonna have to look elsewhere. And you know, for those who don't know, beyond the the drinking stuff, um, Ben Affleck cheated on his wife, and they separated. Uh, his wife Jennifer Garner, and so he, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of you know personal problems Ben Affleck's been going through. But I guess from what I've heard and read, it seems like him and Jennifer Garner have reconciled and are you know. They they still seem to very much care about each other, which comes through in this story that I heard. So, Gavin O'Connor thought the movie was dead with Ben.
0: Well, they're not back together as a relationship. No, no, no,
1: they're not back together, but they're yeah. they're supportive of each other.
0: Yeah, and he's with Ana de Armos now.
1: <laughs> so w- what I've heard was that uh, Jennifer Garner contacted Gavin while Ben was in rehab, and basically said, "Don't give up on Ben for this movie." and Gavin O'Connor said okay why do you know that and she said uh, because he brought a basketball with him to rehab
0: oh wow <laughs> and he was like he was just serious. he's that, like I'm gonna I'm gonna keep working on it and that was
1: I shouldn't laugh but that was his she was like that's his way of telling you that he's he wants to do this movie he can't tell you but he brought a basketball to rehab with him and I just thought, yeah, that, wow, I, I thought that <laughs> I'm laughing, but I actually do think it's really sweet, but it's, it's,
0: no, like it makes sense to me. Like, he's like, no, I want to keep working on this. I want to keep it on my mind. It's going to yeah. distract me. Like, you know, if I can get back to it, I'm going to have to be a basketball coach who can at least like, who used to be a great basketball star. Like, you know, it's yeah, I understand it. But yeah, like you said, like the way it, the, the scene sounds funny. the
1: way, it, the way it's delivered is just very funny. It reminds me of, uh, isaiah thomas not the one from the doc but the the new isaiah thomas who's a current player who's uh boston celtics all-star for a couple of years he got into an altercation earlier this season when the nba was still going on with a fan and he like went into the crowd to approach a fan and they, they thought there was going to be another like mouse in the palace with ron artest but nothing happened there was no punches thrown or anything but they uh he he walked into the stands during a game and like from the bench and confronted a fan and started talking to him. So he was interviewed after the game and a reporter said like, what was that all about? And the guy, Isaiah Thomas said, you know, this guy was shouting at me saying like, you know, F you fag and all this stuff, like just throwing a bunch of slurs at him. So Isaiah Thomas gets like really serious and really low keen. He's like, Hey man, like I'm a man and I'm a father and I can't have that happen. And he did it like three times. So I went up to him and I said, you know, I'm a man. I'm a father. You can't talk to me like that. And the guy just looked at me and said, I'm really sorry. I just wanted a Frosty. Because I guess I was shooting free throws and I guess if I missed, they would have all gotten a Frosty. And he was like so (laughs) deathly serious leading up to it. And when he delivers that line of, sorry, man, I just want frosty. And he's like talking about this life or death thing for him. Oh God, I didn't deliver. Well, I'm sorry, but it was the greatest thing in the world.
0: All right. All right. On that note, Tom, let's wrap it up. We're about to hit the two hour mark. Uh, And tell me, is there anything else you'd like to say about The Way Back before we move on to our recommendations for the week? No,
1: I would say uh, people, who, if, if you like movies like Warrior and Hoosiers, if you like Ben Affleck, uh, this is one of his better performances, I would say totally watch it. I rented it for like five or six bucks and I have no regrets.
0: Yeah, it's very, it's very good. And I think like literally if the Oscars were held right now for this year, they would have to give like Ben Affleck Best Actor. Yeah. You know, so he he's he's good in the movie so definitely check it out highly recommended definitely recommend the last dance absolutely uh, that is that is on espn um you have to have a subscription uh, or have an account through hulu uh there's different ways of accessing it um and yeah all right tom tell me uh tell me some recommendations let's let's tell me what you've been into this week uh throw out some things out there for People to get into really quickly
1: Uh, I started reading I don't forget if I talked about it last week But I I finished book one Of the Mistborn fantasy series This like fantasy epic series By Brandon Sanderson Which has been very uh, The first book was really great I'm reading them with a friend So he is finishing book one Then we're going to start the second one I highly recommend that If you're into fantasy books Like Game of Thrones Or Joe Abercrombie Or Lord of the Rings Um, I am also reading The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle by Haruki Murakami, which is this, you know, 600-page epic um, highbrow literature, blah, blah, blah. That has been very entertaining. I'm really enjoying that. We're going to get into some music in the future. Um, like I told you. Yeah,
0: I think next week's going to be a music episode.
1: Okay, so I'll save I'll save the music stuff. But if you want to listen to maybe one or two albums beforehand the new fiona apple album is one we're going to talk about the new thundercat album is one i really like and the new porridge radio is another album i'm a big fan of so those three uh you may hear me talk about a lot next week
0: porridge radio i don't know that
1: one the name that's the name of the band porridge radio
0: all right, I'll, I will check into that. All right, my recommendations, you mentioned it at the top of the show. Uh, the National Theater is streaming their uh, the shows that they did on the stage, and these are big, major shows, and it's crazy. These are actually, they're giving access for free on YouTube. You just have to go to the National Theater's page. They're still streaming there 24 hours a day right now. I think they're changing out the shows each week. This week is Frankenstein with Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller. <laughs> Uh, this week is Frankenstein with Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller, directed by Train Spotting and Slumdog Millionaires Danny Boyle. Woo! Yeah, so, I mean, it's crazy. It's this chance to watch shows that were on the stage in London and that we would never have a chance to see. These are performances that and stagings of these classic shows that I'm very excited to dig into. I last week was Twelfth Night by Shakespeare. It was like three hours long. I didn't watch it. (laughs) But uh this week is Frankenstein. I do plan on finding some time to watch it. Um I just think it's really cool. And um yeah I that I would I'm recommending it having not watched it myself. It just sounds so cool. I can't imagine it's not. So yeah and my other recommendation i don't think we're gonna have time to do a full review of it but i would encourage people to go check it out i mentioned it earlier as well bad education on hbo with hugh jackman is currently airing and that's it's a very good movie it's got hugh jackman and allison janney it's a true story of the largest i guess theft in uh tax dollars from a long island high school uh from some of the people and the uh Administrational administrative offices at the superintendent's office, uh, and how they scammed uh, millions of dollars from this uh, neighborhood and this school system uh, for their own personal gain. If I and if
1: I watch it, Phil, would you want to talk about it in depth later? Yeah, there's
0: no? plenty. Yeah, I, well, yeah. I mean, I'm fine talking about it. I guess just uh, I, you know, time moves fast. You know, yeah. I, I figured by the time, uh, you know, a week or two's passed, who knows what will come up. So. Okay. Uh, I figured I'd, I mean, if you watch it and you want to talk about it, you have a lot to say. I am more than happy to dig into it. I think there's plenty of uh, good about the movie and um, it's one of the best Hugh Jackman performances without a doubt ever. Uh, Certainly his best in years and uh, the kind of work that I would love to see him do more of. It's uh, where he's much more knowing about his beauty and kind of willing to poke fun at it. And uh, it's, it's very smart about teachers and ego and the kind of, people that commit these crimes that I think are considered victimless in some cases, but how, how they can happen and the psychological ramifications behind some of that stuff. And, you know, what happens to these people? And it's really fascinating. It's a true story. Uh, the guy who wrote the movie is about basically the way the story was broke was the school newspaper is the one that uh, did the research and kind of broke the story uh, of this giant scandal. That's
1: fucking awesome
0: yeah so the school paper is very much like at the heart of the story and the girl who wrote the article is kind of uh one of the major characters and the way it explores journalism and uh all these other aspects it's very similar i think in tone to something like election i don't think it's as great as something like election but i think that's sort of what you should expect in terms of a dark comedy about bad teachers uh doing bad things with uh school funds would you say it's like bad teacher uh it's it's much darker than Bad Teacher. Uh, I actually saw Bad Teacher for the first time this year. I think I saw it like while we were driving cross country to LA.
1: Cameron Diaz being saw... all sexy.
0: Yeah, yeah, with Jason Segel and Justin Timberlake being weird. It was I was there was one joke I need to go look it up, but I remember it was on TV like when we were at the Grand Canyon or something random like that. And I was like, "Okay, I guess we're watching Bad Teacher." And there was one joke. I need to go rewatch it. But there was something in there that cracked me up. I was like, "If there's nothing else, oh, I sent you the video. Do you remember? Oh, in the toilet. It, it was the toilet. Oh my god, the toilet gag fucking killed me. Yeah. There, it's it's basically like somebody's in the bathroom. Don't spoil it. Google as... Google okay,
1: Google yeah. bad teacher toilet scene. Yeah, you'll find oh, it on god, YouTube. Maybe. It's a minute long. It's we, worth
0: your time. Yeah, yeah, you'll see how mature I am. So, all right, uh, those are my recommendations. Bad Education, we might talk more about it in the future if Tom uh, watches it and decides he has a ton to say, but it's a good movie. Definitely check it out. Check out Last Dance, check out Way Back, check out movies at AMC when movie theaters open back up.
1: Uh, So what's on deck? We're going to do the music episode. Is there anything else we should let people know?
0: Um, I mean, I haven't watched it yet, so I don't know. But we could talk about the Parks and Rec premiere. Or oh, we'll, we'll definitely talk about that next week. Yeah, we can talk about that. Um, we had mentioned we haven't we haven't talked about it on mic yet, but the Neon Genesis, we have not mentioned. Oh, yes. That up yet. Thank
1: you. So Phil and I were talking. Uh, I'll keep this very brief. I know we're running late. We were talking. Long, we, yeah. we wanted to uh, hit some major blind spots during the quarantine because we're stuck at home. And I had mentioned that I was planning on watching Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is now streaming on Netflix. By all accounts from uh, all the anime fans that I've talked to, it is the gold standard for anime. And, you know, as as Akira and Miyazaki are the gold standards for anime films, this is the television, um, the top of the mountain for anime television shows. It came out in the 90s. The whole thing is like 26 episodes, half-hour episodes, and then there's a a movie that takes place or that was released after the show. So we are planning on watching those, uh, that entire series, all 26 episodes plus the movie, and we'll probably talk about them uh, over four segments. So do do a discussion about episodes 1 through 7, then 8 through 14, and so on and so on. And uh, we may, depending on how long this quarantine lasts, we may extend that to do some... uh, Some major blind spot movies and stuff like that. But yes, if you are interested, we will definitely be talking about Neon Genesis Evangelion in the near future. Maybe next episode we may start. Maybe the one following. But uh, very soon, we're going to do that.
0: Soon, yeah. We'll definitely be talking music next week. And probably the Parks and Rec reunion would be my guess. Um, Plus whatever else fucking crazy happens in the world in the next week. All right. Tom, that's the show for this week. Please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show. We're available on iTunes and now on YouTube. I think we're gonna I, I need to start looking at other platforms to get us on. Uh every one of those likes and reviews helps us out incredibly. Thank you, Zach Pitts, for the theme music. Tom, before we go, really quick, I made Zach Pitts laugh very hard today, doing something that you will appreciate. Um, Zach loves the movie McGruber, and I used to work with Zach.
1: Hey and, Zach, uh, I knew I liked you. Yeah, best zach comedy Lug. of the century
0: so this i can i swear to god i did this this very day i went to the grocery i saw i came home i was taking the groceries out and i had i was cutting up some some celery so i picked up a piece of celery and i took a picture of oh it god. and then i stuck it up my ass yes. and i took a picture of the celery in my ass <laughs> and i sent it to zach and i said thinking of you oh, and
1: that's amazing <laughs>
0: And he called me saying he had a headache from laughing so hard. And he was sad because no one else in the office would understand what he was, why it was so funny that I'd stuck broccoli or uh, I'm sorry, celery up my ass. Phil, I need, so, I need and, that photo. I will. I'll
1: send it to you. I still have. Can I, phone. can I post it with the, when I post the Instagram of this episode?
0: Yeah, I don't care. I don't no, care. I do want um, to uh, Yeah. I mean, whatever. It's just my ass. Um, and I'm wearing clothes. You just, you just see a little cheek. And so Phil's a little
1: got hair. a great ass.
0: Yeah. So, all right. So thank you, Zach Pitts, for the theme music. You're welcome for the picture of my ass with celery in it today. Uh, and all right. Yeah. Please check us out. Check us out. Blah, blah, blah. Tell them, tell them where to find you.
1: I am at Bindi Tom Bindi on Instagram, and I am at Big Fat Bond on Twitter, and I love you.
0: All right. You can find me. I'm at Phil Wiedenhaft. You can look at the notes at how to spell that. I'm not spelling it. And uh, yeah, look for us there. I'll uh, I'll see you there. Like us on Instagram. And yeah, we'll see you next week. Tom, I'll talk to you next week. Hopefully you uh, stay good. Stay well. Thanks. We'll, uh, have a, we'll stay Have a bunch of content.
1: good days until then.
0: Yeah, we'll hopefully have seven good days. Bye, everybody. You're we ready. love you all. Stay safe Bye. out there. Love you. I'll see you.